see the choices. Because my coach treated me like everybody else. Because my boss showed me how to do a good job. Because a mentor believed in my potential. Is why I am where I am today. I'm swimming faster than I ever dreamed I could. I discovered that I could work as an artist. I led my high school team to two championships. I am a valuable employee. I have a career that I am passionate about. I will be whatever I want to be. What can you do? What can you do? Like all young people, youth with disabilities should grow up expecting to work and succeed. For more information, visit whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. Hello. What have we here? I wonder who dropped this little guy. What? Four terabytes? Wow. That's great. Okay. All right. All right, little fella. Let's see who you belong to. Okay. Oh. Oh. like you belong to Sid now. Let's take you over there. Education centers near you. Nuggets Nation, I love you. Nuggets Nation, let's do it again. I love you, Denver. Thank you once again for the privilege of serving you. We dream, serve, and deliver Denver as America's best city. Now, let's get to work.
I'm Jesse Witten, a local radio DJ, live music promoter, and overall Colorado music scene cheerleader, and your host of Mile High Mixtape, a music video series that brings you a look and listen to some of our community's biggest musical talents. Mile High Mixtape, only on Denver 8 TV. City Council. Please stand by. Full coverage of your Denver City Council begins now. Today's meetings be interpreted into Spanish. Uh, Sam, would you please introduce yourself and let our viewers know how to enable translation on their devices? Yes. Thank you very much for having us once again. Hello, everyone. My name is Sam Guzman with the CLC. And along with my colleague Alejandro, we will be interpreting today's meeting into Spanish. I will now give the instructions in Spanish on how to access interpretation. Buenas tardes a todos. Mi nombre es Samuel Guzmán con la CLC y juntamente con mi colega Alejandro estaremos interpretando la reunión de hoy al español. Si desea escuchar la reunión en español, simplemente vaya al icono de globo en su pantalla que dice interpretación y de ahí seleccione el idioma preferido. Muchas gracias and uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sam. Welcome to the Denver City Council meeting of Monday, January 8th, 2024. Council members, please rise as you are able and join Councilwoman Gilmore in the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you very much. Council members, please join Councilwoman Gilmore as she leads us in the Denver City Council land acknowledgement. Thank you, Council President. The Denver City Council honors and acknowledges that the land on which we reside is the traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. We also recognize the 48 contemporary tribal nations that are historically tied to the lands that make up the state of Colorado. We honor elders past, present, and future, and those who have stewarded this land throughout generations. We also recognize that government, academic, and cultural institutions were founded upon and continue to enact exclusions and erasures of indigenous peoples. May this acknowledgement demonstrate a commitment to working to dismantle ongoing legacies of oppression and inequities and recognize the current and future contributions of indigenous communities in Denver. Thank you very much. Madam Secretary, roll call, please. Alvitres here. Flynn here. Gilmore here. Gonzalez Gutierrez here. Hines here. Cashman here. Lewis present. Parody here. Romero Campbell here. Sandoval 
Sawyer? Here. Watson? Here. Madam President? Here. 13 members present. There are 13 members present. Council has a quorum. Approval of the minutes. Are there any corrections to the minutes of January 2nd? Seeing none, those minutes stand approved. Uh, Council announcements. Are there any announcements today? Councilwoman Sawyer. Thanks, Madam President. Just wanted to remind everyone um, that District by Projects Night will be January 30th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. at George Washington High School. So for those of you who have ever wondered why a road is closed or why something is happening in our district or why something hasn't happened in our district yet, um, this is a great opportunity for you to come and connect directly with um, city agencies in an open house format to get some more information. So um, I do see a lot of our agency heads in the uh, in the um, audience right now. So I will just say thank you to all of you. Um, most of your staff is, or some of your staff is coming from most city agencies um, to this event. So it should be great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Councilman Heinz. Thank you, Madam President. Happy New Year. Uh, and I've got another announcement. Um, I, uh, I'm wearing a vest this morning in case you, uh, you, you didn't know or you didn't go to the press event this morning or uh, aren't catching it on the news tonight, but uh, you might start seeing more of these vests in the, uh, in the central business district and uh, in the, uh, our city center. Um, our mayor and downtown different partnership and some other organizations um, have un unveiled a program to uh, to make sure that people downtown know that there are uh, uh, resources available, folks available who can uh, help you get to Coors Field, or um, if you are uh, in need of services, you can help, they can help you get services as well. So um, if you or uh, personally, or if you see someone who is experiencing a uh, mental health episode or um, perhaps uh, needs some assistance with addiction um, or uh, uh, you just need to know how to get to that new restaurant or or whatnot. Um, you can come out, or you can uh, come downtown and visit with anyone who wears this uh, wonderful orange vest and uh, learn more about um, the services Denver has to offer. So this is actually something that we've been doing for uh, for several years already in the center city. Uh, but the uh, the idea here is that um, if you are in need now, you have an easy way to identify someone who can help direct you to those uh, services to address your need. And uh, if, you, uh, if you live in Denver and um, you are helping fund uh, some of these services because many of them are uh, funded by the, uh, the people of Denver, uh, then you will also know that, um, that your uh, taxpayer dollars are going to good work. So um, there will be about 650 of these vests, uh, maybe not all at the same time, but uh, at various times uh, in the center city. So. Um, even though council member, former council member Clark and I are wearing the vests today in this chambers, uh, there'll be at least 648 other vests all throughout the center city at one time or another, uh, starting very soon. So thank you so much. And thank you, Madam President. Thank you. Club of two. It's a good company though. Um, Councilwoman Sandoval. <clears throat> thank you, um, Madam President. Just want to remind the public that this coming Monday is Martin Luther King Day, and um, we will have the Marade, as always, in Denver. Um, it's one of my favorite holidays. So we start at City Park, and then we march down Colfax. And just invite everyone to come. I'm looking to try to find the time, and I can't seem to find the time. 
What time? Nine thirty. Thank you, Councilman. Um, Nine thirty. But I always try to get there earlier. And just as twenty twenty four starts, I think that we have a huge election coming up. We have lots going on in the city. We've housed folks. We have migrants. So I just want to say, in honor of Dark Martin Luther King, one of my favorite quotes is, "Darkness cannot drive out darkness." Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So let's just think about that as we move into 2024. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you very much. Seeing no one else in queue, uh, presentations. Tonight we have the Denver Colfax Marathon uh, Government Relay presentation. Um, let's welcome Andrea Dowdy of the Colfax Marathon. Am I loud enough? Yes. Usually I'm too loud because when you put together a marathon, you have to be able to shout at 20,000 people at any given time. So should be set. I just wanted to come first of all and say thank you so much. Thank you to the city of Denver for Denver City Council, the Denver Police Department. Chief Thomas is here and I thank you so much for the help he gives us. Denver Fire Department, Denver Parks and Rec. I saw Joel and Clark on our board here tonight. OSC and many, many other departments in Denver for their support. And I wanna give a special shout out for our very speedy Councilman Daryl Watson, who's on our board as well and has been extremely helpful um, coming on our board this year. So, you know, who knew 18 years ago that this tiny little marathon would actually become such a big race and, and one of the big top marathon weekends in the country and actually the only marathon weekend in the country that gives the prize money to charity rather than to internationally recruited elite participants. So we're very proud of that fact. You know, one of the reasons we can be here tonight and they're not joining me tonight is we have a very gracious title sponsor Without them, we couldn't put on this race, and they're phenomenal, Cigna Healthcare. You know, they work to partner with the community to help people focus on health and vitality, which is a really important word to the marathon because that's what we're trying to achieve. And they do a lot of things in the, communication, in the community beyond the Denver Colfax Marathon, International Women's Day, Food Bank of the Rockies, Breast Cancer, you see them all over. Uh, but for them and for us, our mission is to help a runner achieve their personal health and fitness goal. And I invite any of you who don't want to race 26.2 miles this year, but if you do, that's, that's fine as well. Come on over to the finish line and you'll be able to be inspired by how many runners have worked so hard to achieve a personal goal and you get to see their face as they cross the finish line. It's absolutely amazing. So just a few fun facts before I bring these really fast people behind me up to join me here at the podium. We're in year 18. We started at 4,000 runners. Last year, we had 21,000 people running in our race, and that included 2,000 youth, which is remarkable. We have eight races. So for those of you who are frightening right now, you don't have to run 26.2 miles if that's not your cup of tea. You can run a half marathon, 10 miler, and we have our famous relay, which is why everyone's here tonight, as well as a 5K where people actually run or walk. We want to open our doors to all. It is one of the top 25 marathon weekends in the country right now in terms of size. And here's a cool fact. We're now number one in the Rocky Mountain eight state region in terms of a marathon weekend. So this marathon has just escalated over the years in terms of size, in terms of the experience we can offer people because we have such a beautiful city to showcase. We right now have the largest marathon relay in the US, over 1,100 teams in 2023. And that was 6,000 people that are on those teams, uh, which is remarkable. Again, we stand out in the country for that. 
We're a nonprofit, so one of our missions isn't just to give runners a great race and a great personal goal for health and wellness, but it's to give back to the community. Each year we support 125 to 150 nonprofits in their efforts to raise money and awareness. When they raise money use our, with our race, they keep it all. So over the last five years, they've raised about $3 million. They keep every penny of that $3 million. So we've become a great fundraiser for nonprofits, small and large. And then on top of that, we give money to these winning relay teams. And when somebody wins the accounting division or the healthcare or you know, the, the government division, they get to give money to charity. So we give another 100000 on top of that each year. So one of our most fun things we get to do every year is I get to carry around big checks so my popularity increases because everybody wants you know, to have the big check. So that's awesome and fun. And trophies. And we get to congratulate people that are really fast, that work really hard to be able to accomplish their goals. So I'm going to bring up um, both of these teams right now. And if they just come up and stand by me so I'm not by myself, that'd be awesome. Um, we have 1,100 teams. We had a government division. We have a public school teachers division. We have different corporate divisions like accounting, healthcare, construction. Um, you know, professional services and more, and we have an open division. But here we're gonna talk about the government division tonight. So we had quite a few teams this year from the city of Denver, such as General City of Denver, DDPHE, Denver Community Planning and Development, Denver Parks and Rec, Denver Fire, Denver County Court, Denver Housing Stability, and DEN. So lots of participation, lots of people that work for the city wanna get healthy. So we're honored to recognize two teams tonight. So on my left, we first have Denver Fire number one. Jackson Shelburne has been captaining these teams for a number of years now. On the team, but not here tonight, Nick Cummings, because they're working. So I think that they get kudos. They get a hall pass for not coming. Scott Cruz, Connor Clegg, Alex Brown, Matt Binder. And they're going to give their money, not surprisingly, to the Denver Fire Department Foundation with Laura Douglas here to receive the check. Now, the other thing that's kind of fun is that they're giving $1,500 to Denver Fire Department Foundation, but they've been so fast over the years, for example, this year with their second place finish, that over the years, Jackson and his teams have actually won $18,000 for the Denver Fire Department Foundation since 2012. I don't know if you memorized that number, but that's very impressive. So you guys have really done a great job over the years. Now, the other thing is Jackson's carrying this odd thing. This is the brass nozzle. So they have this, they threw down the gauntlet and between West Metro Fire, Aurora Fire and Denver Fire, they see who's got the fastest fire department team every year and they get to have that brass nozzle for one year. And three out of the last four years, Jackson and his team have won it. So let's give a round of applause. So stay up with me. So remember now we're talking 1100 teams. His team took second in the men's division out of a team of 84. Think about these other, they're way faster than 1,050 teams. So these are really impressive folks that are up here standing next to me. And now let's talk about Den Denver County Court probation. I've got probation officers next to me and these, these guys are really quick. This is the run it back, probably gonna win team. We've got Cassandra Roca, Julia Granius, Elizabeth Sandoval, Alexandra Kennedy, Jessica Britton, and the charity partner they chose was Dash for Smiles. They placed third in the women's and they gave us a fun fact. We had a big awards evening and you had to give a fun fact for your team. Their fun fact is there was a 20 year difference between their oldest and youngest runners, but we're not gonna talk about that tonight. So you don't have to fess up to how exactly that laid out. 
But they teamed where 408 was their time. And they had a second place podium finish for women's in the government division. And they also placed second in 2022. So this is a two time winner standing next to me on the right, which is really impressive. And again, gave $1,000 to Dash for Smiles. So thank you so much for helping us give back to the community by being super fast. So now let's talk about our school district here. Denver Public Schools, these teachers are pretty darn fast. They had 152 teams in their divisions. We played down 12 places. And in that top 12, four, four schools were DPS. So when you think about that, it's just an amazing accomplishment. And they really set, up, they set the bar and they really are inspiring to their students. So just to list those, they're not here tonight. We usually go to the, the district school district meeting for that particular presentation. We had a team from Swigert International School, two teams of teachers from Montview DSST and Summit Academy. What they do is they get to win money for their school. So they each won between $1,000 and $1,500 for their school to use any way they want. And again, super excited that DPS really rocks, you know, very much fast in our division. Uh, now, one, here's a thought for you. So we're currently uh, in the process of got the mayor's office who are inspired to create a relay team. So um, hopefully that they might be able to challenge a team from city council. So if you guys are ready to run, I can see everybody's hiding from me right now. Uh, please know that Councilman Darrell Watson will be happy to, to be able to head up that team of council members. Um, and I know Cigna Healthcare has an executive team. They'd like to race against you guys as well. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for your support. Thank you again, Councilman Darrell Watson. And thank these guys for being so fast. And a round of applause for this team as well. Thank you very much. Um, Councilman Watson, let me go to you for comments. Thank you, Council President. Uh, thank you, Andrea, and thank you to each of the teams standing before us. Uh, I am a, a very honored to, to serve on the COPEX Marathon Board for, for two reasons. As an African-American, one of the things that um, I've been really proud to focus on is on community health. And health, not just simply in running, but actually as a black man talking about my health struggles and my health uh, journey on a regular basis, I post my times that I run. I run 40 miles a month on average, um, uh, 5Ks most days uh, to get to 40 miles. And I'm doing that to make sure that I'm empowering, encouraging, celebrating and elevating folks in our community to join us. The COPEX Marathon does this in really elevating the opportunity for teams to raise money for nonprofits, for schools and for organizations that are doing a lot of good within um, Denver. But then it's just a lot of fun. And so I want to encourage folks to join us at the Colfax Mar Marathon this year. And Andrea, there's absolutely no way the mayor's office is going to beat uh, the team that I'm going to pull together of whether a city council member or city council um, um, staff members. We're throwing on the gauntlet. We're, charged, we're challenging them uh, to this race. And I look forward to beating them uh, at the Colfax Marathon. So thank you so much, Andrea. And thank you, uh, Madam President. Thank you, Councilman. Thank you all. And congratulations. And thank you for contributing to this great piece of the city. Appreciate it. Uh, there are no communications, no, um, no proclamations being read during this session. Madam Secretary, will you please read the bills for introduction? 
From the Land Use, Transportation, and Infrastructure Committee 23-1939, a bill for an ordinance approving and accepting the Near Northwest Area Plan, which plan shall become a part of Comprehensive Plan 2040 for the City and County of Denver, pursuant to the provisions of Section 12-61 12, 12 of the Denver Revised Municipal Code. From the Safety, Housing, Education, and Homelessness Committee 23-1960, a bill for an ordinance amending Chapters 24, 38 and 49 of the revised municipal code concerning the removal of shelter when the outside temperature is predicted to be 32 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. Thank you very much. Council members, this is your uh, last chance to call it an item. Uh, Councilman Gilmore, will you make the motions for us tonight? Yes, Council President Torres. Thank you, I'll do a recap under resolutions. Councilwoman Sawyer has called out resolutions 1976, 1978, and 1979 in a block for questions and comments. Under bills for introduction, Council Members Flynn and Sawyer have called out Council Bill 1960 for a vote. Uh, Council Member Sandoval has also called this item out for questions and comments. And Councilwoman Parity has called out the item for an amendment. Under bills for final consideration, no items have been called out. Under pending, no items have been called out. Uh, Madam Secretary, will you put the first item on our screens? And in a block, Councilwoman Sawyer, please go ahead with your questions on uh, resolutions 1976, 78, and 79. Thanks, Madam President. Um, is there someone here who can answer questions about this? Will um, Fenton is here today. Come on awesome. up, Will. Will, do you, I've just got to, while you're walking up, I will just ask. Um, so these are all three contracts for um, hazardous materials, is that right? Okay, thank you. Um, so the, um, the first one, the EHS contract, is that, these are, are these all new contracts? Very good question. So these are, these are uh, expiring contracts and there were services that were renewing with these separate contracts and have nothing to do with other related services that EHS, for example, provide. Okay, that was my main question. So EHS is our service provider who um, provides services for our uh, encampment cleanups. So are these encampment cleanup contracts? Nothing or are these others? Very separate, yes. Very separate. Okay, what kinds of things do they cover? I'll invite my colleague, Paul Bedard, who can explain very in depth what they are. Awesome, thank Paul you. Good afternoon, my name is Paul Bedard with the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, manager in the Environmental Quality Division. Um, I believe you asked what the um, scope of work was or the services for the contracts being called out. Um, they are to perform um, various uh, services re relating to um, hazardous waste and hazardous materials unrelated to uh, persons experiencing homelessness or um, the city's um, housing program. Um, so they are, for instance, um, moving um, waste generated by the Dottie fleet shops um, that um, has hazardous characteristics that must be uh, drummed and shipped off-site for disposal at a regulated disposal site. Um, and they also are for um, uh, assisting the city with large projects such as soil abatement um, or um, other types of uh, land abatement um, for environmental purposes. Okay, really appreciate that clarification. Thank yes. you so much. Um, just a couple of follow-up questions to that. So this is $35 million in contracts over the next three years, and that's a big number. Yes. Um, in, in my recollection, in the last five years, we have only approved the one hazardous materials contract, and it was for EHS for encampment cleanups. So um, are these contracts um, 
usually this big? Well, if, um, let me um, uh, clarify that um, in the past, we had contracts with five uh, different uh, corporate providers of services, all for hazardous materials management, um, unrelated to um, EHS's work for um, what we call abandoned waste. Um, those contractors were ET Technologies, Belfort Environmental, Custom Environmental, and they changed their name to Ambipar, and Belfort Environmental, as well as um, Veolia Environmental Services. Um, so those were the folks, uh, the contracts that we are replacing now. So all of those five have expired. We extended two to, to, to bridge the gap. Um, and um, we are now um, asking for these three to be approved um, now as replacements for those old contracts. Okay, and so these are these are the RFP winners. Yes, these are the, exactly. They were competitively bid, uh, managed through the uh, purchasing division, um, and among ten bidders, we selected seven contractors, seven uh, vendors to receive a intent to award letter. Um, we are still negotiating with three more. Okay, and um, okay, so we've got thirty-five million dollars worth of hazardous waste material cleanup That's here, correct. and we have another three more that are coming through. Potentially, yes. Okay. Um, and and so I did not answer your question well about regarding the the, the, the value. Yeah. Are, yeah. Is this up to is large, ten million? Is a large number, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, we are giving ourselves room in case we discover that we suddenly need to engage in a large project. Um, so large projects can be extremely expensive. Um, and they get expensive right away. So we want to have um, room on specific contracts to be able to engage contractors immediately without having to um, be concerned about a limitation and how much we can spend on that abatement project. Okay, so um, just to be very clear, these contracts are up to $10 million, but not for $10 million, no matter whether the work is done or not. That is correct. We like to refer to these um, as on-call contracts, yeah. which means the city guarantees no work at any time. However, when the city needs something done, say Dottie needs to engage in a uh, abatement of a property or my own department needs to engage in some work, um, we work, we identify the contractor best able to perform that based on what their qualifications are, their fleet, their number of staff, what their, what their um, expertise is, and then we specifically engage them. Um, we discuss the project, we determine the specific scope of work, and then we authorize through notice proceed a specific scope of work to accomplish this project. And so that is the only money that we then um, are obligated to based on their performance and its time and materials. Awesome, really appreciate that information. And I do just wanna say thank you um, to your team and to Will for pulling together um, the report of the on-call contracts from DDPHE that was sent out to council members last week. Great. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks, Madam President. Thank Great, thank you. Seeing no one else in queue, we'll move on to our next bill. Madam Secretary, please put the next item on our screens, Bill 1960, um, a bill for an ordinance uh, concerning the removal of shelter when outside temperature is predicted to be 32 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put Bill 1960 on the floor for publication? Yes, Council President. I move that Council Bill 23-1960 be ordered published. Thank you very much. And that's been moved and seconded. Um, we have two amendments to offer on this, and this is the first reading of this bill. Uh, Councilwoman Parity, uh, your motion, your first motion to amend. Yes. Um, and I'm pulling it up as usual. <laughs> Give me a moment. Okay, um, 
So I move to that Council Bill 23-1960 be moved as be amended as follows. Um, on page one, line 34, strike 86.2 D1 and replace with 86.2 E1. And number two, on page two, strike lines two through five and replace with the following. Hang on, Councilwoman, I think that's the second one that we've got Oh, I'm sorry, up. I reversed Let's them. Let's start with the uh, period when the removal. Got it. Hold on. There we go. Okay. All right. So scratch that. I move to amend Council Bill 23-1960 as follows. Number one, on page two, strike line one and replace with the period when the removal will occur or within two hours after anticipated completion of the removal. Number two, on page two, strike line 11 and replace with the following, uh, subpart one, the external ambient. Number three, on page three, strike line 12 and replace with period when the removal will occur or within two hours after anticipated completion of the removal. Madam President, should I read the purpose of the amendment right now? Not. Um... Not just yet. I'll okay. call on you for comment first. Um, let's get it on the floor. Thank you. Um, and that's been moved and seconded. Um, we'll go to comments and we'll start with your comment, Councilwoman Perry. Great. Thank you. Um, so I just want to take a moment and say very clearly what this ordinance um, would and would not do and what this amendment um, would do, um, which has two subparts. Um, so the ordinance as a whole, as we know, impacts three types of city enforcement. Um, that apply when when there's um, the presence of a tent or a shelter, um, removal from the right of way, removal for public health purposes, or the camping ban. Um, and I want to say emphatically that the city has many, many other forms of enforcement authority um, that can be used um, generally when there are various kinds of emergencies, fires, medical emergencies. Um, th this is a small subset of city authorities that are used primarily when the issue is just the presence of a shelter in and of itself. Um, and I also want to say that this, this ordinance would not prevent camping ban enforcement for one third of the year. Um, one of the amendments, uh, one of the two changes encompassed within the amendment that I just entered into the record um, is that in conversation with the mayor's agencies and other members of council um, and looking at weather data for Denver, uh, we know that our temperatures in Denver tend to go up and down um, and that often we have kind of these warm afternoons. And so the goal of this ordinance is that if we're going to do an enforcement action that removes someone's shelter, that we're doing it during a warm period when it's above freezing. Um, and the reasons for that are because of the severe risks to, to human health that we heard about in detail um, in our safety committee and our budget and policy committee uh, that happen when, when you move someone out into the cold from shelter um, when it's below freezing, what that does to human bodies. Um, so the first component of this amendment uh, states that the city has to carry out its removal during a period when it's above above freezing for the time when the actual removal of shelter is occurring and then for another two hours afterward to give that person time to get resettled. Uh, in the draft that passed through the safety committee, we had a four hour period for the person to find another place to go. Um, and we've reduced that to try to make sure that agencies have more time to do enforcement. So when you look at our weather in Denver, um, for the past nine winters, not including this winter because it's not over yet and it's been unseasonably warm, so we took that out. Um, but over the past nine winters, um, 
when you look at days in uh, December, January, and February, which are our coldest months, um, we find, and I'm sorry, because I'm pulling it up, we find that uh, about 88% of days in January have a period of at least five hours when the temperature goes above freezing. 82% of days in February have a period uh, when the temperature goes above freezing and December is a little bit warmer than that. So those are our coldest months. Um, with this amendment, given a five hour period, an agency would have three hours to carry out an enforcement action um, and that would still give people two hours to resettle. So you might see a pattern where you're splitting enforcement over a couple of days, um, but we're not gonna see a situation where we're entirely hamstrung from being able to do enforcement at all throughout the entirety of the winter. Um, and so that's the main thing, you know, that this amendment is meant to address is to try to help clear up um, any concern that this is effectively um, prevents the city from doing any enforcement at all for many months out of the winter. It doesn't, um, and that's even more true given this amendment. The other component um, of this amendment, I just want to pull it back up, is that we listened to the Department of Safety. Um, it, originally, we had listened um, to the the departments that do larger scale encampment cleanups. And what Department of Transit and Infrastructure had told us is that they would like to be able to look at the temperature a few days in advance for their planning purposes so that they know um, if a removal that they are carrying out can go forward or not um, ahead of time, because those are larger scale, they tend to be planned in advance. Um, and so we, we put that at an end before safety committee. Um, then in speaking to Department of Safety, some of the information we got from them, in fact, over the weekend, um, what we heard from safety is that camping ban enforcement tends to be more fluid, tends to be in response to 311 calls um, or just um, officers that are kind of doing their rounds. And so they would prefer for their officers to be able to check the temperature at the time they're doing a camping ban enforcement action. And so that's the second edit that this amendment is intended to achieve is to leave um, leave the larger agencies able to check the temperature two days in advance and plan accordingly um, and leave the Department of Safety able to do enforcement since theirs is more fluid and um, moment by moment based on the temperature at, the, at that time of day. Um, so that's the purpose of the amendment. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you very much. Um, any other comments by members of council on this amendment? Seeing none. Madam Secretary, roll call please on the amendment to 23-1960. Alvitas? Aye. Flynn? Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Aye. Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? Aye. Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. 13 ayes. 13 eyes, uh, council, council Bill 1960 has been amended. Uh, we will go to amendment number two, Councilwoman Parity, your motion to amend. Thank you, Madam President. Um, as I previewed, I move to amend Council Bill 23-1960 further as follows. Number one on page one, line 34, strike out 86.2 sub D sub one and replace with 86.2 sub E sub one. Number two on page two, strike lines two through five and replace with the following. Uh, subpart one, it shall be an exception to this subsection B if the manager certifies in the order of removal by reason of facts stated in writing that removal of a shelter is necessary to mitigate a condition that would cause greater imminent peril to the health or safety of any person than to the health, than, than to the, sorry, than the threat to health posed by exposure to existing weather conditions. 
Subpart two, nothing in this subsection B shall prohibit an agency or department from offering medical or human services assistance, including but not limited to mental health treatment, drug or alcohol rehabilitation, homeless services assistance, or temporary or permanent housing solutions, regardless of the external ambient temperature. Subpart three, on page two, after line 33, add the following. Subpart D, nothing in subsection C above shall be construed to prohibit an agency or department from offering medical or human services assistance, including but not limited to mental health treatment, drug or alcohol rehabilitation, homeless services assistance, or temporary or permanent housing solutions, regardless of the external ambient temperature. Um, and then the next part becomes subpart E. Number three, on page three, line 10, strike 86.2 sub D sub one and replace with 86.2 sub E sub one. Number four on page three, strike lines 13 to 17 and replace with the following. Sub one, it shall be an exception to this subsection B if the manager of the Department of Public Health and Environment has certified by reasons of facts stated in writing that removal of a shelter is or was necessary to mitigate a condition that would cause greater imminent peril to the health or safety of any person than the threat to health posed by exposure to existing weather conditions. Subpart two, nothing in this subsection B shall prohibit an agency or department from offering medical or human services assistance, including but not limited to mental health treatment, drug or alcohol rehabilitation, homeless services assistance, or temporary or permanent housing solutions, regardless of the external ambient temperature. Thank you very much. And we need, it's been moved and seconded. Comments by members of council. We'll start with Councilwoman Parity. Yeah, so this amendment, um, even though I, I think um, there, there have been questions raised about whether or not the city could continue to voluntarily assist people um, to move into housing or shelter in cold temperatures if these ordinances passed. And although um, the sponsors have been and remain confident that, that the ordinances would not have that impact because a voluntary act of assisting someone to move or offering someone resources or otherwise contacting them um, is not a form of city enforcement. That's something we can do without um, without relying on our powers under the camping ban. Um, nonetheless, um, because we heard that concern repeatedly, we just wanted to put it to rest. And so we're adding the savings clause that says that nothing about these ordinances is meant to prevent outreach or offers of housing or offers of medical assistance. Um, because of course we would never wanna prevent that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And seeing no one else in queue, Madam Secretary, roll call please on the amendment to Council Bill 1960. Alvidrez? Aye. Flynn? Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Aye. Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? Aye. Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. 13 ayes. 13 ayes, um, Council Bill 1960 has been amended. Um, Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put Council Bill 1960 on the floor for publication as amended? I move that Council Bill 23-1960 be ordered published as amended. Thank you very much. And that's been moved and seconded. Um, comments by members of Council on 1960. And we'll start with those who called this item out. Councilman Flynn. Thank you, Madam President, and thank you to the sponsors for those two amendments. I think they, they start to address some of the many problems I see with the, with the bill, uh, but they do not resolve them. So let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, Nick Williams, as you're walking up, what is the typical time that it takes Dottie to conduct a cleanup 
when do they typically start? What time of day do they start? Sure. Thank you, Councilman. Thank you, members of Council. Nicholas Williams, Department of Transportation Infrastructure. Um, certainly, large encumbrance cleanups vary pretty widely. If mm -hmm. I do attach an average, it would be about eight hours. Mm -hmm. And that really is eight hours to move, again, lots of variance on large encumbrance cleanups, but eight hours to move about 10 tons of materials out. Mm -hmm. And going back to kind of the, when does a, an encampment cleanup start? We, I, I think you all provided a, a, you sent little, us a, memo a little timeline. 7 a.m., I believe. Yeah, fencing. so we will start to put fences up kind of between six and seven uh, at that. Uh, DPD starts engaging with the campers uh, at about 8, 8 a.m. Uh, typically that's going to, to take a couple hours. Uh, and then Dottie at that point is not engaging with folks other than to, uh, if anybody needs storage. So mm -hmm. working with our, our EHS partners that we uh, referenced earlier here today uh, for storage. And then typically once everyone has moved out, that's when Dottie's uh, solid waste teams move in. And that's where you're looking at uh, typically eight hours. So a lot of our large encampment cleanups span over two days now. Over two days. Okay, thank you. I had one in my district that lasted 12 hours uh, along uh, 285. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, when we do, uh, well, what I would point out, no, what I want to point out with, from that is that the uh, amendment that reduced the time after completion from four hours to two hours uh, does give a break to uh, the time frame, uh, but with a typical uh, time of eight hours to do an enforcement or a cleanup, adding the two hours, we would require a 10-hour window, not an eight-hour window, and I think that substantially reduces the available windows of time in the weather records that we were sent last night. Thank you, uh, Councilwoman, for sending those. Uh, it kept me up more of the night than I had planned to, to sample the, uh, the data. Uh, frequently, the temperatures do not reach 33 degrees until 11, 12, 1 p.m., uh, which is too late in the winter, especially, to start uh, a cleanup because the sun will set anywhere from 4.30 to to 5.30, depending on what, what day it is. Uh, is host here? Uh, okay, who, when we do outreach, I don't know if you're the person to answer this, but when we do uh, outreach to encampments before the start of a cleanup, uh, what happens? We offer shelter, we offer services. Uh, what do we do when we post a site? That question, Lana Dalton, uh, interim deputy director for housing stability and homelessness resolution. Um, typically, we have a specific team that's designated to large encumbrance removals, and they go out and offer services at least seven days ahead of time. Um, with the House One Thousand efforts, we've kind of shifted that, um, and we've had that seven-day approach with a larger uh, scope and a larger effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, how often do you know? Um, do uh, individuals accept services and come into shelter as opposed to moving to another location? Yeah, so I think it depends on what you're offering. Um, uh -huh. I think we've seen high success with our House 1000 effort if we offer something that's dignified and available for individuals to have privacy and things of that nature. Uh, folks would like to take it. We've, we've seen over a 90% success rate with folks um, accepting whatever we have to offer as far as uh, alternative shelters. Yeah, it also would depend on the individual's specific needs. Correct, right. yes. Okay, uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob McDonald, uh, DDPHE Public Health and Environment. Um, 
Can you tell us what are the health and safety risks presented to people living in the middle of a rat infestation? Uh, yes, uh, Bob McDonald, uh, Chief of Staff and Interim Executive Director for DDPHD. There are literally dozens of diseases that can be transmitted directly from rodents to people or from ticks and fleas and mites that are, that are on those rodents. Uh, tularemia, plague, hantavirus, salmonella. Uh, there's a, a recent strain of hepatitis that looks like it might be fairly new in terms of transmissible between rodents and people. Uh, things like rat bite fever, which can be very, very serious. Uh, now, not all of these things can be transmitted in the wintertime, but many of them can be, uh, like rat bite fever. And, and in fact, CDC indicates or lists people living among a rodent infestation as a very high risk for something like rat bite fever. Bob, what are, what are the health and safety risks caused by uh, uh, exposure to human waste? Uh, used syringe needles, leaking propane tanks? Yeah, well, again, a, a wide range of uh, health and safety risks there. We've, we've had incidences where propane tanks have blown up. There have been fires, um, electricity taken out uh, from, from those explosions. Um, we, we, again, a, a wide range of, of issues in terms of mm -hmm. human waste, almost as many things, um, hepatitis, bloodborne pathogens uh, can be spread, hepatitis, uh, uh, two different strains of hepatitis, HIV uh, from needles. Um, those are bloodborne pathogens. Then there can also be things like skin infections from the, from the puncture itself, uh, things like staphylococcus infections and the like. Thank you. Is Denver Fire here? And we also, Emily, we also have uh, Chief DeBear and Chief Fulton coming in on Zoom. So maybe we'll start there. Okay. Uh, we'll give them just a second to come into okay. the panel. Just one quick question and then, and then one more after that. Sure. And then pass it on. Uh, Chief Fulton or any representative from fire, how often, if you know, have we responded to fires at encampments? And what is the principal cause of them? Chief, did you hear the question? I see you in the panel now. I did not. I apologize. I was having some technical difficulties getting uh, logged in and out. If you could ask the question again, I'd appreciate it, sir. Uh, certainly, Chief. Thank you. If you know, uh, how often has a DFD responded to fires at encampments? And principally, what are the causes? I know we've seen uh, leaking propane tanks. Uh, are, and what other causes? Uh, that's a great question, Councilman, and I've got some data in front of me, but unfortunately, it's not as complete as I would like. We've got different responses, and it depends on how the nature code is first initiated. Uh, in 2023, we responded to 108 encampment fires, um, but we also respond to numerous calls, which would be considered an illegal burn. We respond to anywhere from three to six illegal burns a day at encampments, but more often than not, we have to make the determination once we're on site, whether it's occupants that are merely keeping warm or they're potentially cooking lunch or dinner. And we allow the officers to make the determination as long as there's no threat to themselves or others on whether we allow that fire to, to continue. As far as other types of responses, we will respond sometimes on uh, propane 
and we confiscated roughly 12,000 pounds of propane. And to be very clear, we're not there for an enforcement capacity. We're merely there to ensure that the fire code is being followed in regards to the compressed gases that are on site. So as I stated, we've got a team that goes out during these academy cleanups and we took possession of, of roughly 12,000 pounds of propane and roughly 1,000 pounds of other compressed gases as of, uh, that we have on record for last year. Thank you, uh, Chief. Uh, thank you, Madam President. The, my reason for asking this series of questions is one of the um, more troubling provisions in the bill, in my view, is that it would require a certification from the, uh, the head of DDPHE that conditions warrant cleaning up an encampment uh, when conditions are present a greater hazard to life and safety than, uh, than the temperatures itself. And I don't know how, how one would objectively apply that standard, but during the committee uh, session, the only specific example we were given of such a circumstance was an actual active fire. And I, I don't have any clarity yet on whether any of these, in fact, it was said that the rat infestation would not be uh, such a circumstance, and that causes me great concern, and is one of the reasons that I would prefer that we leave these decisions in the hands of our public health and safety professionals, rather than to legislate a hard and fast line. But if I could ask the sponsors, can, can you provide us with specific examples of when circumstances or conditions in an encampment would justify such a declaration by the director of DDPHE, other than the tents on fire? Um, is that a question for the sponsors? For any any of the sponsors. So Great. Is that okay, Madam President? Um, yes, yes. Go ahead, okay. Councilman. So, so first of all, I think, Councilman Flynn, I think we may be um, missing the forest for the trees a little bit here because the Denver Fire Department has authority to put out fires. Outdoor burns are illegal, um, not under one of the three provisions that this ordinance touches, but separately. So we're not touching that authority. They can always address an illegal burn no matter what the temperature is. Um, and if, for some reason, one of the three agencies that are impacted today, which is DDPHE, DOTI, um, and Camping Man Enforcement, which would be Denver Police, so not the fire department, um, if for some reason one of those agencies needed to do Camping Man Enforcement or encumbrance removal, in other words, if for some reason they were responding to a fire, that would certainly fall under the exception for something that is a worse threat to public health. However, I don't know why they would be. That would typically be the fire department and that authority is utterly untouched. Um, for your question of, regarding like other examples, um, just to step back for to make sure we're all on the same page. What we're talking about here is all of these forms of enforcement can still occur during warm periods. They can even occur under 32 degrees when it is freezing if there's some greater threat to health, to human life, um, that can only be addressed by camping ban enforcement or a public health or DOTI large encampment remo removal. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't wanna, the, the types of examples that could be included there, um, those could include threats of violence, those could include perhaps a new emerging health threat. That is actually for DDPHE to certify. Um, and part of the reason why there are probably not a lot of examples of that is that these agencies, the camping ban, the DDPHE authority and the DOTI authority are actually not our primary way of responding to emergencies. Um, those would be many other authorities within the city code, including by the way, the entirety of the municipal criminal code other than the camping ban. So assault is illegal, you can respond to that. Um, drug use is illegal, you can respond to that. All of those other 
criminal prohibitions that we have, which of which there are hundreds, um, the police are able to do that kind of enforcement when it's cold out at an encampment. They just cannot specifically enforce the camping ban. So when I say this ordinance is meant to impact situations where the only issue is the presence of a shelter, that's what I'm saying. It really is that narrow. The, the best example I can think of that would fall within the exigency, exigency exception, sorry, would be if a tent is set up in a roadway, because at that point, the issue really is the presence of a tent and the person in the tent and anyone driving are probably more threatened by a car striking that tent than by the temperature. So DOTI could certainly do right of way enforcement if a tent was in a roadway, in an alley, somewhere where a car might strike it. That's the best example I can think of where the issue of the, sh the shelter itself truly is the emergency. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Great, thank you very much. Councilwoman Sawyer. Thanks, Madam President. Um, I don't, I, uh, Councilmember Flynn got a lot of my questions, so I don't have um, additional questions. Are we doing comments right now? Or um, should we wait on that and just do questions? I think we're doing questions and comments. Okay, great. Um, well, then in that case, um, I, I just want to thank the sponsors um, for bringing this forward and for being willing to um, to amend it uh, to address some of the concerns that we had at committee. Um, and, and additionally, to hold um, the, the second half of this bill um, during the pilot program. So thank you both for that. Really, really appreciate that. Um, I still, all four of you, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, I, I still do have some concerns, I think, um, around this uh, bill in particular. I've brought them up to Councilmember Parity, um, and I'm happy to discuss this further with you. In, in my opinion, um, what we're really looking at here is a situation where we have a group of people who, um, rightfully so, have uh, feel that their trust has been breached by the city and county of Denver. And, and, and I think that that's fair. Um, I'm not sure that this language is the solution that needs to happen. Um, I think that, you know, this is a new administration. We have spent between 2023 and 2024, we're looking at $100 million or more um, in changes to our non-congregate shelter system and setting up our non-congregate shelter system um, to address some of the reasons why uh, our unsheltered residents have refused to go to a congregate shelter setting in the future. And that's a big deal. And that is new um, within the last six months. Um, I, I also think that this is a storage issue, that there are um, things that we as a city need to change when it comes to item storage for our unhoused residents that would make um, a huge difference in our in some of our residents being willing to move into shelter when it is under 32 degrees because at the end of the day it is inhumane to leave anyone out on the streets when it is under 32 degrees when it is freezing that said um i, I don't support this i think i what i would prefer to see and like i said i brought this up to council member parity would be formalization of the process that we already use that isn't formalized anywhere. It is not in policies and procedures. It is not in rules and regs. It is not in the DRMC, the Denver Revised Municipal Code. It's not anywhere. It's something that lives in the minds of the staff members of the city and county of Denver. And I, and I think that that's not okay. I think that we should absolutely memorialize 
what it is that we as legislators um, in this city want to see um, moving forward for a, a situation that is that that is a sweep um, or an encampment cleanup. That said, um, what I see in the language of this bill isn't that. The language of this bill says no, and then there are three exceptions. Um, and to me, that is not addressing the, the larger challenges that come um, with our encampment cleanups, things I just talked about, like storage, like the reasons why people do not want to go to congregate shelter and remain unhoused on our streets in freezing weather. Um, and so I would, if, if the sponsors are willing to consider um, maybe working on some language that codifies um, specifically the way we do our encampment sweeps um, or the way we address this instead of kind of having it be a blanket no with some with three limited exceptions I would be um, happy to discuss that and willing to consider it but the way it's written right now um, I'm not supportive of it so I'll be a no tonight thank you so much thank you uh, Councilwoman Sandoval <clears throat> thank you um, Madam President so I have lots of questions um, so with the amendment that just passed, um, people, we just heard about um, an, a camp, an encampment, like a fake encampment, whatever, that had a rat infestation to the bill sponsors. Now that we passed that amendment, um, would the encampment be able to be cleaned up with a, with a rat infestation? Would it be able to be decommissioned? Um, it would be able to be cleaned up during a period when it was above 32. And I want to emphasize one thing, because we just uh, made this amendment shortening the period for people to kind of get resettled in order to create more times throughout the winter when enforcement could occur, I re-ran the numbers. Um, and essentially, if, if what we're looking at is we need a 10-hour day to do an eight-hour encampment cleanup, um, the average winter month, so October to March over the past nine years, had 17 days that had 10 consecutive hours above freezing. So that's not every month. You might get a really cold December now and again. Um, but we are going to be able to find those days and, and do enforcement on those days if we look for them. Um, so on those days, there's nothing's changing, right? As long as it's above 32, no change. GDPHE can, can do cleanups as it does now. Um, under 32 degrees, no, I do not think that the risk of a rat bite is worse than the risk of putting someone out of their tent into the cold. And I think we heard that clearly from our experts from CU, from Denver Health, um, and so on. I mean, I think it's common sense, honestly. I, I don't want anyone to, you know, to experience rat-borne illness, um, but going out in your cold, in the cold from your tent when it's 25 degrees out, um, and having to haul your cart of belongings across the city and find somewhere else to set up. Um, I think there's no question that those health impacts are not comparable. Okay. And then um, for a decommissioning of a encampment, can the fence start going up? So say we had, let's hypothetically say we had a posting tomorrow, um, which would be the ninth, and it was for posted for seven days and we needed to get it out on the 16th. Would the 16th next week is, it's between 23 degrees and 50 degrees. Would that encampment be able to be cleaned up or would it have to be reposted? Um, I keep getting conflicting answers 
on whether it would be have to be reposted or not, because if it were had to be reposted, then it'd have to be reposted for another seven days. So I think that's where my, I have lots of confusion mm -hmm. in the nuance of the ordinance on how it actually like plays out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and this is the interaction with the Lyle settlement. And I, I do want to say that in our very early meetings with um, the mayor's team, we talked about um, including an amendment that would codify the Lyle settlement and make it track some of this a little better. And there was just not an appetite for that. So as of now, um, the Lyle settlement says that for a large encumbrance removal, so that's um, like a large encampment, not uh, one individual tent that's being encountered usually by the police department. Um, you, you have to give notice of that seven days in advance. Um, what happens under the statute is then two days before the cleanup, the agency looks at the predicted temperature. Um, if it's too cold, if it's predicted to be too cold, that's the information that they that they go off of for a large scale incumbents removal. And so they could repost on that day. Um, and so it might, it, it, you could have a pattern where it got bumped. Um, you know, you post seven days ahead of time, you check two days before, so that's in five days, you post it again. That could happen. Um, so th there is that possibility. And I think that's, um, first of all, I think that's worth it, again, because of the um, what's at stake here. Um, but I also, one thing I would be more than happy to to re-raise would be that issue of um, codifying the Lyle settlement and how those posting requirements interact with um, the temperature requirement. Okay, so just so I'm clear, we would have to, we post a site and then two days later, so it, the site would be on its fifth day of posting, we would look at the weather and if the weather is predicted to be like next Tuesday or next, yeah, next Tuesday, it's predicted to be 23 degrees in the morning and then get up to 50. We would have, we couldn't do it correct because it would be, right. I would be under. And the only other thing I would say is that if I'm an agency in that position, when I, when I go to post, when I go to do the Lyle posting to begin with, I mean, there are seven day weather forecasts. They might not be perfect, yeah. but you can check the weather seven days out. Looks like it's going to be warm enough, post it and then check again five days to make sure. Okay, so it's the fifth day, on the fifth day. Okay. Um, so when you, so say we're in a situation where it is above 32 degrees. Um, no, I think that, so I think I just answered my own question. So even if it were um, 32 degrees that next day, um, two days prior, so on day five, you're looking at the weather forecast and it's like not going to be above 32 degrees. You can't do anything. They would have to repost it and look at the weather. So the fencing couldn't go up. Nothing could go up. Is that correct? Um, the only thing that the, the Lyle settlement addresses or these ordinances is actually removing people's shelters. So I don't think those preparatory steps are prohibited by anything in here. Um, I don't know if there's any, and I can't think of any other rule against you know the city placing fencing in its own right of way um i will say i i do want to give the opportunity if i'm i believe i'm correct that that the lyle settlement it requires that seven day notice so it would require reposting um but if there's if there's someone from Dottie who has more experience with that who wants to just confirm that or clarify whether um whether i'm correct that would be great i don't know if there is we've got wendy standing up to come to the podium. Wendy Thanks, Wendy. Hi. Thanks, Wendy. <laughs> Any takers? <laughs> yeah. 
see. I'm going to take this one on behalf of Dottie since I'm the one that helped negotiate the full and final settlement agreement. Even better. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. So what the Lyle settlement agreement provides is that seven days notice unless the city is determined that a public health or safety risk exists, which requires it. So based upon the scenario that Councilperson Sandoval just said, notice would be again, another seven days. Okay, so it, it went up day five, that two days, it wasn't above 32 degrees. We would have to repost again for seven days. For correct? another seven days, exactly. And then if on day five of the second posting, are you following me? It wasn't above 32 degrees. We would have to postpone again for another seven days. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Unless there was some public health or safety risk that arose during that time that required more urgency to act, it would be that continuing of that seven-day posting every time. Okay. And the whole entire day, does it have to be above 32 degrees, or how do we determine that, Councilman Parity? How um, do we determine the... 32 degree threshold. Yeah, um, and before I answer that, I just wanna say that um, Wendy reminded me, the, the Lyle settlement posting requirement itself has a health and safety exemption in it that's much broader than these ordinances. And so it gets a little complicated, but if, if the agency had posted and then realized it was gonna have to, have to not go ahead seven days later, but there was a health or safety concern, even not one as severe um, as we've been talking about any health or safety concern, they could waive the seven day posting and they, they do sometimes do that. And I appreciate that reminder. So they have that flexibility, which I think is a little different than what I originally said to you. Um, and then I'm sorry, can you repeat the second, the piece um, you just raised? So the whole day, when, how does the 32 degrees, can it be like 32 degrees? Oh in the morning and then get up to 52 degrees in the afternoon because Denver, yeah. <laughs> our weather is so crazy. Um, so for, uh, with the amendment that we passed tonight for DDPHE and Dottie, they would need to look 48 hours in advance at the National Weather Service data. And, and you're looking at the hour by hour predicted temperatures, looking to make sure that it'll be above 32 for the entire time of the enforcement action and the two hours after. Um, and okay. you can always shorten your enforcement um, you know, you can say, okay, we have a, we have a five hour window. So we're going to do three hours of tent removals that day. Um, and then for, for department of safety, based on the feedback that they sent on Saturday, um, they just check the national weather service, um, at the time that they're, that they're doing enforcement because they're typically called out more in that kind of way. Okay. And Wendy, I have a question for you. Um, so based on the Lyle send settlement, if we had a large encompass or encumbrance that we were decommissioning an encampment, could the fencing go up around it or the fencing has to follow the seven day posting? Does that make sense? So does that make, all, there's tons of details. There's tons of, I call it back work, like tons of details that go into, so the fencing is ordered, right away street closure permit is ordered um, in some cases, not all. Talk to me about those steps. What can be done um, for this if this ordinance were to pass? So those steps happen the day of yep. when it's going to happen. So the fencing would not be going up. None of that would be happening until that 32 degrees was in effect. Okay. So... Uh, 
Madam President, I have more questions, but I just sucked the full time. I'll go back in the queue. That'd be great. I'll go back in the queue. Thank okay. you. Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, uh, Council President. Uh, I have a question. I think Bob um, O'Donnell, sir, if you don't mind coming forward, I know you just got interrupted, but if you don't mind coming forward. Uh, and, and I think this was, you presented us the last time you came before us, but I, I just want to make sure because it, it, it may be a little unclear uh, the amount of times you, 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 you've, you've had to um, speak to this. Can you walk through what the current process is for health and safety uh, cleanups? Sure, Council Member. Before I do, if I could just offer one point of clarity yes, sir. on the comments I made before. Rat bite fever is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, you don't have to be bitten by a rat to get rat bite fever. Just living among an infestation uh, can cause someone to become infected with rat bite fever. So I just, I just want to make that clear. And, 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 and I'll the, be clear before you, you answer my question. Um, the encampment that was, um, uh, the health and safety cleanup encampment was in my district. It, it was on, I believe on, on Champus Street. Um, the mitigation required um, movement of rocks. There were rats that were buried under. The rats were not only in the encampments, they were across the street into Woods Box. They were up the street into Tea Lee's Tea Shop. Um, so uh, the impacts were not simply around the encampments. Um, and so I, I at least want to make sure that we understand it's in a controlled situation um, when we say that rat in, in infestations are, are something that we, um, that, that may or may not provoke um, the opportunity within this ordinance. Um, there are impacts that go well beyond the folks that are um, residents residing in Kemet. But my question, sir, to you was to help me understand what the current process is. Walk me through, a, and, and, and the audience and the folks listening, what the current process is. Sure, so we have staff members who are trained to do these assessments. They're trained on a wide range of things, uh, diseases that can be spread from rats and like just all kinds of things they take into account in terms of the imminent public health risks that might be stemming from an encampment. Uh, they will make document, they will document their notes uh, electronically and in hard copy. Uh, they'll take photos, uh, very detailed photos. Uh, then they submit that information to the leadership to, of DDPHE, myself and others, uh, Director of Public Health Inve uh, Investigations, Danica Lee. Um, and so, and then at the management level, we will talk with other managers uh, in other departments, and we talk about things that they're seeing, concerns that they might have, and we make collective decisions about, you know, when a camp needs to be cleaned up. Um, so it's, it's, it's very comprehensive, very detailed, involves a number of different people weighing in on this. And what are some of the factors currently that uh, DDPHE uses for identifying when health and safety is at risk uh, from uh, um, based on encampments. What are, what are some of the things you're looking yeah. at? Well, I wanna make this clear, temperature. Uh, you know, we, when, when we close an area under our authority, uh, we're, we take a look at the temperature, we take a look at what the weather is going to be and there have, been, there have been a number of situations in which we did not move forward waiting for the weather to warm up, but it's not always an opportunity to do that. Um, and but I want to make it clear that I, I'm not disagreeing on the importance of the temperature as a risk factor. My concern is making that more of a risk factor 
than the other, <clears throat> excuse me, the other things that I've mentioned. There's a reason that we haven't seen plague in encampments in Denver like they have in other communities because we don't let a rat infestation go on for a long period of time. And, and those infestations, I said earlier, that you don't see all those types of diseases spread during the winter time, but it can, and you might've made this point, Councilmember, it can take months with a severe rat infestation. It can take months to get that under control. And so if you have a problem in January, yeah, we're gonna jump on it because it's only gonna get worse when the spring and summer months hit in terms of what can be transmitted from rodents. And while the people in the encampment, they're the highest risk for things like rat bite fever and hantavirus and the other things that I mentioned, uh, I, I'll tell you that one of the biggest rat infestations I've seen um, was in a park, but I was really concerned about what would have happened if that infestation was in a more urban setting within the condominium setting. It would, if that were to get inside buildings, that could take months and months and months to uh, abate something like that. So we look at infestations, we look at needles, we look at human waste, we look at general trash, and then there's also the environmental components, things that are washing, might be washing down into, into the storm drain. We look at, uh, at a wide range of things. Um, what, what is it close to? What's the encampment close to? Who could be exposed to these things that might be living around the camp? So while we look at things that are protective of certainly those, those that are within the camp, you're right. We look at how it might impact the surrounding community as well. And a quick yes or no. In, in the times where you do encampment um, resolution, and it may be for someone else specific to storage of equipment, um, what's your... When it comes to the the timing for encampment resolution, is that normally two-hour timeline, five-hour timeline? Give give the timeline once again as far as how the duration of that time that yeah. your team normally um, meets. Yeah, Not well, even I, your team, but the, through your leadership and the other teams that come through. Yeah, I, I might ask that. That's a little bit closer to people with their boots on the ground, but I, yeah. I might ask maybe our partners at Dottie and some others. Please. What I will tell you is that if, if we deem it an imminent public health risk, and there have been few, uh, we generally will act quicker than in other situations. All right, and before Dottie comes, I want to ask you directly as the, um, your department is highly listed, is listed quite a bit within this uh, proposed bill um, of making the decision, being a deciding factor on that, uh, of, of when and how, if it's a health and safety cleanup. Today, as the interim leader and the leader who's led this organization for many years, uh, how does this uh, or legislation impact your ability and the ability of your teams to actually do the work that you've been doing and, and from my perspective, doing well? well? Well, quite frankly, I have to say, I'm, not, I'm still not sure what that language means. I don't know what it means. Nobody's talking directly with me about what it means to certify that one public health risk is more serious than another public health risk. And, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm concerned about the idea of legislating the decision-making of people who have public health experience many, many years making these assessments and are out in the field every day making these determinations. I'm, I'm concerned about that, but I don't know what that means to certify by fact that this is more serious than this. I'm concerned about the thresholds that have been mentioned those are not the thresholds that I would identify. Thank you, sir. And you would be responsible for doing that. So I'm, I appreciate you 
making that comment. I have a question for Dottie, and then I'm gonna to go to Denver Parks and I have just one final question and, and comments. So Dottie, do you mind sharing and introducing yourself and kind of sharing kind of the, the timeline of your process and then the same question I asked Mr. O'Donnell, how does this, the, the current language of this uh, existing legislation, how does that impact you and the work that you, that you currently do? Thank you, Councilman. Again, Nick Williams, Department of Transportation Infrastructure. And to the timeline, kind of talked about it earlier here, yep. but typically Dottie will arrive on site at about 6 a.m. Uh, we manage the installation of the fencing that goes up. Typically that's gonna take about an hour, six to 7 a.m.-ish. Um, at 7 a.m., our, our staff exits the cleanup area. And I'll talk about the kind of one exception to that, but wanna be very clear, we're not in there um, interacting with folks, proactively interacting with folks. Uh, 8 a.m. Dottie, or I'm sorry, DPD begins the, the occupant notification process. Uh, uh, at that point, uh, once the once folks start leaving, Dottie will come back in with the EHS representative uh, and they will manage the, the requests for storage uh, at, at that point. So that's happening at that eight o'clock hour. Now that notification and move out, that can vary, but it's gonna be typically between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. that we get in. And then at that point, once folks are moved out, Dottie's cleanup team moves in and starts removing that trash. And wh what I said earlier was, you know, you look, when it's talking to Joey, uh, if we think about an average large encumbrance cleanup, it's approximately 10 tons of material. And that typically will take, and again, varies widely, but typically take about eight hours. For personal property, there's been a lot of discussion around the fear of losing property. Can you share what occurs, um, what happens with the individuals that are living, residents living in these encampments, um, their personal property. What has occurred um, within the current health and safety cleanups that you've done in 2023? Um, um, and, and what is your regular process for storage? Sure, happy to speak about our, our storage process here. So uh, during a cleanup operation, storage offered to any occupant in or around the cleanup area. When an occupant requests storage, EHS will tag an item, making sure, it, think of it as like a receipt. Uh, that this item is going to storage uh, on there and provide retrieval information to the owner. And I think that was provided to everyone uh, in our information, the actual pamphlet, um, and make sure they are aware that uh, may be collected without fear of arrest uh, and it is free of charge, that storage process. Um, items that are unattended and deemed non-hazardous, so safe to, safe to move, safe to manipulate uh, out there are also stored and listed under a list of unattended and stored property with details posted online, and I provided that link to you all uh, on there. Uh, items are then placed uh, on an EHS transport vehicle and transported to the EHS storage facility, and that's at 1449 Gallapago uh, on there. Um, during the DPD notification process, uh, DPD documents all interactions regarding storage items versus disposal of items on body-worn cam. We wanna be very clear that we are storing what wants to be stored, and we're only disposing of what doesn't want to be stored or is not able to be stored because of hazardous conditions uh, on there. Um, and those go into that EHS storage facility for 30 days uh, on there. And then anything not claimed within uh, 30 days is moved to a secondary site for an additional 30 days. And then finally, all property not claimed within 60 days from the date of storage uh, is disposed of by our staff after verifying expiration of that 60-day timeline. So your storage um, of property that is identified by residents, you tag it, they receive a tag, they're aware of that storage. For property that's not hazardous, um, that doesn't have an individual tied to it, 
you tag it, you store it. Both that storage is for 60 days and any hazardous or deemed hazardous by your team um, that it's taken, those are, there is a camera, a video of those items, correct? Body camera, um, before those are discarded. And I asked Denver police maybe to come up and speak to that. Um, are there circumstances in which you are aware of, of property being tossed um, by your teams or others? Um, is this a controlled site? I mean, who else is involved in this site? Yes, it, it is our storage. expectation, and that's part of the reason for the fencing. It is for safety. It is for security. It is for, you know, as we're doing this, we're moving around things like um, skid steers, large equipment uh, on there. But yes, it is our expectation that this is a control process and that we're very clear that what can be stored, what is requested to be stored is stored, and what is requested to be disposed of is disposed of, unless it is also a hazardous material, and that does then get uh, 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 disposed of. Uh, may I ask a question of DPD? And then um, I, thank you so much. That was very yeah. helpful to have that information. Councilman Watson, if you can get back in the queue after this question, yes, that would be I great. Do. And I'm coming up to you. Um, Chief Whitman, I said Whitman, my goodness, you see how old I am. Chief Thomas. Um, <laughs> good Lord. Back in the day. That's about 12, 15 years. Um, Chief Tom, do, you, do you mind sharing, um, adding on to the description on, on storage or impact to non-stored um, um, uh, residents um, items? Yes, thank you for the question. And good afternoon, members of council. Ron Thomas, Denver Chief of Police. So uh, as was described, uh, that, that is the process. And, and you know, they, um, they do identify those items that are either to be stored or to be destroyed because they're contaminated. Um, we do capture uh, that conversation on body-worn camera. And then, uh, and then those, those items are uh, delivered to that storage facility. Last question for you, sir. How does this impact this proposed bill um, impact your work and the work of Denver Police? Well, I, 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 there are a couple of challenges that I see. One is that, um, you know, I think that eight to 10 hours is actually quite a conservative estimate in terms of time to, to from start to finish to, uh, to finish uh, the average cleanup. The other you know, concern that I have is, you know, um, uh, well over 100 people uh, died outside in, in 2023. Um, and uh, that's, that, that equates to about more than two a week. And um, the last three weeks of 2023, we didn't have a single outdoor death. I think a lot of that is attributed to our ability to move uh, folks indoors. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And seeing how close we are to our five o'clock timeline, um, I'm going to propose that we recess uh, for general public comment, which starts at five, and then um, pick this uh, conversation back up when we reconvene at 5.30. So if there are no objections from members of council, we'll recess until 5.30 and complete any remaining items left over from this session during unfinished business uh, before reconvening the regular meeting. Um, council provides a half hour general public comment session next to hear from folks on city matters, except there are one scheduled for a legally required public hearing. General public comment session will begin at five. Uh, tonight, there's a required public hearing on council bill 1714, Changing the zoning classification for 1645 North Grape Street in South Park Hill. A required public hearing on Council Bill 1836, changing the zoning classification for 434 South High Street in Washington Park. And a required public hearing on Council Bill 1484, changing the zoning classification for 5107 to 5135 North Emerson Street in Glo
Thank you very much. We're going to keep moving on. No, sir, we're not. Sir, we cannot hold up the meeting for your comment. Sign up sooner, sir. The second Monday of most months, Denver City Council in partnership with arts and venues. Sir, if you can't leave on your own, I will ask the Sheriff's Department to escort you out. Caesar. No. Caesar, you got too much to lose. The second Monday of most months, Denver City Council in partnership with arts and venues celebrates a thriving cultural and creative sector by featuring the talented artists and cultural organizations that make our city great. Denver raised Wes Watkins. Where is Wes? There you are. <laughs> um, has been deeply involved with the music scene for the past decade, playing with groups from uh, Air Dubai to Nathaniel Rateliff. Watkins has been known to play, to have a presence in some of the most iconic bands coming out of Denver. Uh, he's currently playing with Itzkali, excellent, and his self-titled large ensemble. Uh, Wes Watkins Ensemble. Um, thank you, Wes, for being here. We know it's a, it's a busy night. It's a cold night, so we really appreciate you joining us. And we will turn the mic over to you. It's a busy night, so I won't take too long. I'm Wes. Uh, oh, Wes, we might need you at the mic so folks online can hear you and on well, TV. I'm not going to move that, but I will <laughs> say hello. Uh, there's some new faces. Congrats. Welcome. Uh, and Wes, I was homeless in this town for a long time. A lot of people saw me busking first, and then I ended up getting gold records in Europe, and then I went back to Doctors and Dimes. Um, and listening to the night, you know, I had a plan, and then the band got sick. COVID's out, you know? Sick is out, so people are unhealthy. Um, and so I had a plan, and then it got changed, because listening to everybody tonight, I, I think maybe the moral of the story is we all got to have a little bit of compassion. We all got to make sure that we're listening, actually listening and processing what people are saying. Uh, I'm pretty loud, so. That's not what I like for you. 
that was incredible. Thank you so much for being here. Can you share with us at the mic how we can find you online? Can you share with us at the mic where we can find you, where the public can find you? Um, I'm out and around, but, but uh, <laughs> online I'm the Wes Watkins. There's, there's no T. Uh, W-E-S-W-A-T-K-I-N-S, but I'm, I'm around, you know, come say hello. Amen. Thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. Council will now reconvene from our early session. Uh, for those of you who have joined us for uh, proclamation or rezoning, we have unfinished business from our earlier session that we didn't get to, so um, it'll be just a little bit longer before we get to those items. Uh, we have two items of unfinished business. Uh, Council Bill 23-1960 as amended and our block vote. Uh, we will resume our consideration of Council Bill 23-1960 as amended. Uh, we will climb back into the queue, which um, uh, kicks off with Councilwoman uh, Romero Campbell. And remember, we are taking both questions and comments um, on this bill, um, which is the temperature bill for sweeps. Councilwoman Romero Campbell. Thank you, Council President. Um, I have just a few questions and I think um, an observation as especially for this evening before I ask, um, ask some of my questions, I think one of, the, one of the things that we all agree upon is that you know, leaving people out in the cold is inhumane. And how do we do this in a way where we find solutions that really address, how do we, how do we put forward um, things that are really addressing the solutions that I'm hearing? I heard um, tonight uh, a lot of people talking about, you know, possessions and what do we do with people's um, things? And I think, I'm not sure that is, addressed in this particular ordinance. And so that would be something that I would want to have further um, conversation with those who brought this forward. And I do think that, and I thank you the sponsors for bringing this forward because I think that this is the conversation we need to be having. I'm not sure this is the place to make some of these decisions. Um, and I'm just putting that out there up front, knowing um, again, having spent a lot of time doing uh, child care and child care licensing. And I know that some of my um, my other council members have heard this from me before. Um, when you talk about, you know, the temperature for washing hands, you know, in a, in a child care center or the temperature of when um, children can go outside and play um, or go outside, um, there are those regulations, but it's handled at a different level and it's handled at a department level and goes through um, a community process where we have that feedback where you have department heads really challenging and, um, and, and discussing amongst and across um, different departments. And I just have to say an observation is, is I'm not necessarily seeing that these, um, this particular ordinance is giving the work to the departments to be able to discuss across um, across organizations or across um, departments. And so that would be something that I would be very um, encouraged or I would encourage that we would wanna um, uh, see moving forward. Uh, there was a council member and I apologize, I didn't write down who had said this, but um, I think it's the responsibility that we are thoughtful about um, what is in people's heads and what we know to be able to put it down as a process um, and putting forth um, an ordinance. I, 
I feel as though we could be hindering some of those conversations and communication amongst agencies. Um, I do have a question specifically, um, and I actually don't know who would answer this, um, but for District 4, and in my district, one of the things that um, I wonder and I think about is what does it look like, um, what does it look like in my district? You know, we don't have the large encampments that we've seen in other districts. We have two tents, one tent. Um, we have, you know, a few tents that just went up that I'm receiving um, a number of calls about today. Uh, and what does this look like in this ordinance if we looked at today, moving um, and bringing people inside? How does this happen? I mean, you know, for the encampments um, that are just along the Highline Canal, that are on corners, that are maybe two tents. Um, does that qualify as a an encampment in this ordinance? Nick, I'm not sure if this is a question for you or for um, our city attorney's office. I think we're talking largely about posted encampments. So. Um, what happens to uh, locations that have uh, fewer tents than what we require uh, of seven day posting. Mm -hmm. Is that the question councilwoman? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Council member uh, in Nick Williams for Dottie. Uh, you know, I think my, our experience primarily in the, the debris removal, the d disposal that is in the large encampment. So I don't really have a good answer for what is the lower uh, level of uh, what is an encampment uh, on there. Thank goodness. Thank you. Wendy. Hello again, Wendy Shea, Special Counsel Department of Safety. So with the ones that don't fall within the large scale removal, mm -hmm. there's a 48 hour posting that's typically required if we're talking about an encampment or any of the property that might have been left behind is when we're doing that type of posting there. Mm -hmm. And would that be, <coughs> would the temperature also be restricted under this ordinance? It, it would be the same that we were talking about with the seven day posting. So if it fell within that ordinance, the posting would just have to keep being posted the entire time until we got out of that um, 32 degree or below window. Um, is there anything in this ordinance that addresses if we have young children, if we have, if we have children in an encampment, in a tent? So in the ordinances as written, there's, there's no exception in there. So we would it would go the same as we would have for all of the other um, regulations and guidelines. That's correct. Sorry, I'm just gonna pause, that's, that's a lot. Um, I think one of, uh, actually I don't think I know, one of my other um, questions, what, how are we able to address, um, I receive a lot of calls um, from business leaders and uh, how this would impede business operations. 
um, do we have, uh, is there anything in this ordinance that then would allow businesses to be able to address encampments in front of their work or in their back alleys, um, in their doorways, et cetera? I don't know who answers that one. Is that safety or? So I, I think I can take that again, just with the way the ordinance is written, it's, it's that temperature requirement. Mm -hmm. So there, until that 32 degrees, based upon what's in the ordinance, there wouldn't be an ability to take care of what you're asking counselors. Would there be, um, and this is just my knowledge of, of trying to understand, if you have a posting for seven days and then you check you know, 48 hours beforehand and that day falls on a Sunday, is there still a process for organizations or do we just do, um, are we just looking Monday through Friday for encampment relocations? So when we're, we're posting, we're typically posting during the, the weekdays. Mm -hmm. We don't have the, the crews that are out there doing the postings typically on a Friday or, or sorry, Saturday or Sunday. So if something came up, again, it would be the, the reposting. Thank you. Um, and I just have one other question. Um, and I, I see that we have someone here from um, Denver Parks and Rec. Can you talk to me a little bit about encampment removal um, from a park? Um, what would this look like? How does this impact our park use during the winter months? Uh, good, uh, good evening, Council. Joan Clark, Executive Director of Parks and Recreation. Um, I have Eliza Unholtz who runs our ranger program, who can probably talk more specifically to the logistics um, <clears throat> uh, of how we handle things. But um, I think anything, my understanding from our reading of it, and, and if there's an attorney who wants to um, jump in if I get this wrong, is any any kind of um, encampment resolution that, that fell under the camping ordinances would, would be treated like anywhere else. We do also though enforce on curfew and on other park rules. And my reading of the bill is that this doesn't necessarily impede that. But I, I would like um, uh, Eliza to speak a little bit to how we already handle those things in cold weather, if that is amenable. Thank you. Good evening, Madam Chair and Councilwoman. Um, thank you for the question. Um, specifically, are you asking how this proposal would impede or how it would affect us mm -hmm. as park rangers? Yeah. Um, if I could just give a little bit of um, background. So rangers, um, a lot of what we do is relationship-based in the parks. And so oftentimes when we know that there's cold weather coming, we will tell people, there's cold weather coming, you need to make arrangements. We encourage you to go indoors and seek shelter indoors. Um, so proactive notification of people. Um, rangers are also trained in um, trauma-informed care and um, mental health first aid and um, wilderness first aid or just regular first aid. And we're always gonna put the needs of the individual first. So we are already um, making assessments uh, when we are enforcing park rules. Um, as Director Clark said, um, including fires, structures, and curfew. So we use discretion on every contact that we make. In very general terms, rangers do not enforce 
um, curfew violations or structure violations mm -hmm. based on a number of factors, specifically temperature, precipitation, wind, um, the forecast. So has it been very cold or will it stay very cold? We're looking at all those factors. And then we're also assessing the, the gear and the equipment that, that the people have. Are they well-dressed for weather? Do they have adequate um, shelter? Because if they um, don't accept our offers, um, we want to make sure that they're safe. So um, the health and the welfare of the people in the parks is more important than enforcing any rule. Um, thank you. Uh, are there a lot of people? Should I just there, get back we've in queue? We've got eight folks in queue. So. Okay. Yep. How about if I go back in queue? But thank you. Okay. Uh, thanks, Madam good. President. Councilman Hines. Uh, thank you, Madam President. I want to, I, I think I want to start with the city attorney's office. Uh, so, um, and probably Ms. Dublichin. Um, Oops, I'm sorry. I don't, uh, well, okay, I'll just ask the question and we'll see uh, who's, I guess the first question is uh, not, uh, how many, um, have we issued any large scale cleanups in the last four years as a result, or four and a half years as a result of the camping ban? I think the answer is no, but I just wanna, I wanna be. That one's me. So Wendy Shea again, special counsel to safety. So the large scale removal process is not hooked to the enforcement of the campaign ordinance. So your answer would be zero. Okay. Right. And, uh, but we have issued, uh, how many, um, how many cleanups have we issued uh, since July 17th, as in with the new administration? Do you know that, that number by any chance? I, I don't know how many. Yeah, okay. been decommissioned since we had the new administration. It's not as many as it was under the, the prior due to the, the new process and procedure. Sure, I, I think the number is seven, but I don't know for certain. And I'd rather, rather than guess, I'd rather know for sure. So where I'm going with the question is um, how many of those uh, cleanups were issued where we did not offer 100% of, um, uh, of that population um, housing, and I think that that answer might just be two. It, it, right, it, it's my understanding, right, when they're going to decommission, they've offered the people their housing. The only issue is if others come into that area after people are on the list and the number of places available have been filled. Yeah, and uh, that was actually my next question. So we've gotten 1,135 people indoors, thanks to House 1000. Uh, now that we have more than a thousand of our unhoused indoors, um, would we be issuing large-scale encumbrance cleanups? Because I'm not sure I know of any large-scale encumbrances, uh, certainly not in District 10, but I don't know of any large-scale encumbrances in Denver. So uh, maybe uh, I'm asking questions that no one here can answer. Is that, is that fair? Councilman Sandoval wants to chime in. Yep. We just had one last Wednesday at the encampment and I have another one that has migrants living in it that would be posted tomorrow. So the answer is absolutely. Something other than zero. Yes. Okay, great, thank you. Um, 
Okay, and um, uh, and then I, I guess uh, Ms. Shea, I guess the one other question. So, um, if we just learned about um, some amendments earlier today, so maybe this is addressed, and I haven't been able to fully digest the uh, amendments, but. Um, What's the impact of this legislation to move areas uh, that has already that have already retired an encampment and then have new campers in that location? Have we um, have we considered that yet? Or um, perhaps, maybe I'll just wait. Actually, never mind. I unless you want to answer, I'll just wait and see if I can get more about the amendments because maybe that would impact your decision or your uh, response. So thank you, thank you, Council President. I do have comments, but I also see several other people in the queue, so I might wait until then. We do indeed, thank you so much. And just a reminder for folks, this is up at first reading, so we still have another week um, before this comes back to us for final reading. Uh, Councilman Cashman. Yeah, thank you, Madam President. Um, I, I would start by saying that when this bill came up, um, it seems only humane and logical to me that we don't shove people around when it's freezing out. I understand the city agency's concerns and all the stuff that, that I've seen the administration bring up has sounded pretty reasonable to me. And I think my colleagues have done a great job at trying to um, be collaborative. Um, you know, as far as cleanups and how long it takes to do cleanups, uh, we heard, heard Mr. Williams say, we already at times take uh, a couple of days to do a cleanup. So I, I think that can be negotiated. Um, a question for our, our legislative council, Anshul, uh, um, um, or John, whoever wants to answer. Uh, you know, we've heard this argument, does uh, rat infestation qualify? Does it not qualify? My understanding is the director of uh, the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment can declare a public health emergency. Is that correct or where are we at on that? Yeah, thanks Councilman Cashman, Anshabaga Legislative Council. Uh, so to answer your question, the manager of DDPHE can declare a public health emergency, but more to the point, I think of your question, the language in the draft leaves the discretion to the manager to decide when the threat to public health is greater than the threat to the health of the person due to the existing weather conditions. So that discretion is left up to the manager of DDPHE under all of the reinforcement mechanisms in the draft of the ordinance. That may be subject to appeal, but largely it's up to the, DD, the manager of DDPG's discretion. Yeah, so nowhere does it say fire, rats, or anything else. It leaves the discretion up to the agencies. That's, that's correct. It does not list what qualifies as an emergency that's greater than the threat to the person due to existing weather conditions. It just leaves that up to the discretion of the manager. Thank you. Um, and I, I don't know who might be able to answer this. Um, I was very interested in the statistics Councilman Parity compiled as to how many days um, actually do not provide that window to do a cleanup. <clears throat> and the administration had been floating around that if this passes, we lose our ability to do cleanups for a third of the year. And I wonder if anyone would like to address whether they want to stay with that as fact or if they um, except the councilwoman's estimates on how many days we would lose, which appeared to me somewhere in the 10 to 15% of the days over the four month period. 
And if someone wants to get back to me, we are at first reading. So I'd be glad to hear about that. Um, Wendy um, and Ashay, on, on, the, on the reposting, um, and I'm not an expert on the Lyle settlement. However, um, it just seems to me, I'm guessing that the original um, requirement that we post is designed to give people time to assess their situation and decide where they're going to go and so on. It would seem reasonable to me if we've met that one one week requirement that it might be a reasonable argument to present to the court that conditions may lead us to give people yet more time. I'm wondering if I'm way off base there and what the process would be to um, make that appeal to the court. So again, it's it's the, the language of the agreement that we're talking about right. what the city agreed to. And what the city did agree to is at least seven days notice. At least. Unless there is this public health or safety risk which requires less notice. So if we've already posted seven days, and even the practice sure. prior has been, if we don't do the cleanup at that point, we post for another seven days. Where, so, does it, where do you interpret that requirement in what the court said? It's not what the court said, it's what our settlement agreement said. Right, what we agreed right. to do was give them seven days. So if right. we decide that we're not gonna do the cleanup at that point, we have to give another seven days before we come in for one of the large scale cleanups, unless there's a public health or safety reason specifically not to do so. So that's, so that's what the language is. We would have to reopen the settlement agreement and see if, if that would be something that could be changed. Sure, there, there would always be an ability so that to- we, we could ask, we gave you seven days, now there's a chance at the end of that seven days to keep you healthy, we might delay it three days rather than have to repost for a week. I understand it's hypothetical. I just, so we'd have to reopen the settlement agreement. And right, re and re remember that this was a class settlement. Yeah. So there, there's a lot more to it than would just be like in a regular settlement with the plaintiff that we would go to. Right. To, to try and get that type of a change to the agreement. Right, okay. Um, and that's your interpretation of the settlement. That I, I'm just having trouble seeing where it says if if we if we think there's reason to give you yet more time to get your stuff together, that it requires a full reposting. But I'm gonna trust you. You're an attorney. I only play one on TV, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then the other, the other just kind of a comment that I saw fly by about something preventing interagency cooperation in determining how to approach um, cleanups. Is, again, is there anything in this that prevents parks from talking to DDPHE to talking to DPD or fire? Uh, thanks, Councilman Cashman, for the question. Not Trabago, Assistant City Attorney. The, no, there's nothing in the ordinance that directly prohibits one agency from communicating with another one. It's it's possible that that comment was made in reference to one agency being able to 
leverage the tools of another agency because the ordinance does prohibit three agencies from using particular tools. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, do, 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 do. That's all I've got. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you very much. Tim? Good evening, Council Members. Tim Hoffman, Mayor's Office. I just wanted to quickly address Councilman Cashman's question about the third of the year. Um, given the amendments and some of the information that Councilman Parity has provided, uh, we're going to go back and reevaluate evaluate, um, the numbers of days that we think would be restricted, and we'll share that out with all of Council as soon as we have those numbers. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Councilman Cashman. Um, and just a reminder, folks, we had some unfinished business from our 3.30 session, so our proclamation and rezoning hearings um, will come after uh, we finish our block vote. Uh, Councilwoman Alvidez. Thank you, Council President. Um, it doesn't feel great to vote on whether or not we're going to leave someone out in a tent freezing or move them along. Um, and I'm just curious what happens when we do do a sweep my assumption under all of our conversations is that we take their tent away and leave them with nothing on the street. Is that the case? I don't know what department can speak to that. Nick, uh, Therese, I know that you probably got experience on this too, but Nick, let's go to you first. Thank you, Council President. Thank you, Councilwoman. Uh, again, Nick Williams, Dottie. Uh, no, the only way a tent is taken away is if it is abandoned and hazardous, or if it is if we are told explicitly by the person that they no longer want the tent. Otherwise, they can certainly take things with them, or the tent would go into storage that they can then collect uh, over that next 30 to 60 day period. And so you can store it for 30 to 60 days for them, or they can pack up their tent and move to a different street Correct. and continue to camp as it is right now. Correct. Um, Okay, and then when, um, so where they go is just like up the street or wherever, somewhere else, but they're not being connected with housing. I would defer to our human service agencies on kind of what services are offered to them, but, but just to be clear on the tent, we only dispose of it mm -hmm. if it is either abandoned, hazardous, or has been asked to be disposed of. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Um, this question would be for the um, sponsors, and that is, was there any uh, talk in this proposal of what, what ha if the sweep is allowable, if they're being connected to housing, or if they're able to have a better option than what they're being living in right now? Um, that's the intent of the amendment that we drafted, was just to clarify that um, you know, outreach offers of housing, all of that is never prohibited. Um, but even aside from the amendment, um, someone voluntarily accepting help from a city agency to pack their stuff and get on a bus is not a use of city power. It's not a form of enforcement. So, I mean, I think that's, I mean, we would never, never want to touch that. Um, and that would include house a thousand move-in days, the Zuni camp move-in, um, where the, where the posting comes into play is because of the concern that there might be people there who don't move um, and, and the desire to then, you know, ask them to move along if they don't accept the housing on that same day. So if they don't accept housing, then we're asking them to move. What is the requirement? Like move one block, move, do you know? There's um, no requirement. Anywhere but here. Yeah, okay. Angela, did you want to chime in? Hi, Angela Casillas, Legislative Director. 
I just wanted to clarify, my, it's my understanding here that if anyone is asked to move, they are always given the option to move indoors. Uh, I guess my question around that, when I think about moving indoors, one, I see that the freezing, I mean, the warming centers close at 7 a.m. So what do they do at 7 a.m.? Um, or is that a shelter? Or is that somewhere where they can stay during the day? Because where I'm concerned is that it's also freezing during the day. So what happens? Um, I can't go into the details there. I don't know if anyone can help me. Laura, can I, can I clarify yeah. one thing yeah, there? Sarah, go ahead. Um, even if people are offered shelter, um, first of all, I don't think that happens 100% of the time because as we saw on Wednesday, the by name lists are not always accurate, like things happen. Um, but if they're offered shelter and they, they don't or can't accept it because they're banned from that location for, for all kinds of reasons, um, then at that point, just because they were offered the shelter doesn't mean it's voluntary for their stuff to be moved along. So if they say, no, thank you, I'm good that's where the where it becomes involuntary. So and then kind of going back to some of the testimony about um, what happens when they go into shelter and leave their tent, then it's taken, you're saying, or that's what has been said during testimony, right? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm just trying to understand where people are supposed to go like at 7am when the warming shelter closes. Um, well, I can go back and address that last question. My understanding is if they're asked to move and they go inside, that their stuff is actually put in storage. So it's the, it, it goes to the storage facility that we've been talking about. Okay, thank you. And then what, where do they go like at 7 a.m. when the warming shelter closes? Hi everyone, Chris Hills, Department of Housing Stability. Um, very broad question because our congregate and non-congregate shelter system is just really vast. Um, you might be referring to the severe weather emergency. Yes, that's weather. what I'm referring exactly. to. Exactly, so um, when that closes in the morning, um, everyone who's staying at that facility is bused um, to the St. Francis Center. So no one's like, because right now they're staying um, at two hotel sites in, in Council District 8. Um, <clears throat> um, and so anyway. In the morning, they're transported to. And what's that little option. Chris? Yeah, I'm having trouble hearing. Just actually, speak louder. I'm yeah. having trouble hearing everything oh. <laughs> in this chamber, just so you know. And I don't know about you guys. Okay, so I will try to speak up. Um, they're moved indoors. Okay, so they're moved from they the warming center to somewhere else where they can be indoors. Yep. And then at night, they're moved back to the warming center. Yep. So they're... there's not a point where people are stuck outside without access to warmth. If, they if they're choosing to be a part of the system, right? Um, we can't force them into shelter, but yes. Right. Yeah. There's always a choice to be out on the street uh, and be freezing, yeah. not forcing them into a warming center. Yes. Okay, thank you. I think one, the thing that I have left is just thinking about my district specifically and the things that have happened over the last couple of months when it's freezing. Um, I just wanna make sure that this is actually saving lives because what I've seen in my district is that when it's freezing and people are intense, they do more drugs. And what I've seen in my district, people have died from overdoses on those really, really freezing days um, and they have burned. I don't know if they burned alive or if they passed away and then their fire got out of control. But those are things that I'm carrying on my heart and trying to like navigate through this very complicated situation and I I do feel like it sounds like 
we're doing so much and it sounds like we're doing the right thing and maybe we do need to solidify what we're doing in writing. Um, but I really appreciate uh, this being brought up to conversation. Um, I just still have a lot of questions internally on like, what are we actually doing? Are we actually saving lives with this? Um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Council you. President. Uh, we've got five folks in queue. Councilwoman Gonzalez Gutierrez. Thank you, um, Madam President. I have a couple of questions, um, probably for the bill sponsors. Um, first, starting, because just hearing you, we're here on first reading and, and trying to get gauge an understanding. And I guess um, from your perspective, if you feel that uh, the engagement that you've had with stakeholders, such as the mayor's office, the departments, um, <clears throat> that any concerns that have been brought to your attention that you've been willing to try to work on those issues and that was the result of the amendments that were brought before us today. Um, the amendments today were, we drafted after we read um, a written document from the mayor's agencies, which was the first thing we'd gotten in writing, kind of laying out their concerns um, and knowing the mad scramble that they've all been in the last couple months, I do understand this, but we met originally in August um, and pretty much laid out the bill that's in front of you now. When we met with DOTI and heard their concern about wanting to know exactly when they had to look at the temperature, we drafted that in immediately. Um, and then, the, you know, we, like I said, we put together the two amendments tonight um, from a memo that we got on Saturday afternoon. So we're more than happy to do it. It's been hard, I think, for everybody um, to engage given the volume of what we've all been dealing with around these issues. Absolutely. So just to be very clear, you received feedback this over this weekend? And that's what prompted the drafting of the amendment? Yes, yeah, the memo that we all got on Saturday. Thank you very much for that. Um, and I really appreciate that because that is that is our job. Uh, and, and I really um, value the fact that you are taking the time to listen to the folks who would be charged with the implementation um, as that is incredibly important. And it sounds like you're willing to continue to do that and continue to work with folks. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Sorry, all four sponsors are nodding. <laughs> I'm just making <laughs> Sorry, I'm used to where it's only a recording and there is no visual, so people can't hear so you have to speak. Um, well, and the last thing I'm just going to say here tonight, because I want to save most of this for when we get to the next step, is that, you know, I'm, I am very supportive of this effort. I greatly appreciate the fact that um, the bill sponsors have taken the time um, that they have taken in presenting information to this body um, over the course of months, getting medical research, having Dr. Barocas come and provide actual medical documentation and research. I can't tell you how incredibly important and valuable that has been for me to be able to see that information and have a greater understanding of what is at risk here. I keep hearing a lot of, you know, uh, uh, difficulties with how do we actually do this and how do we um, address this need here? How do we address the storage issue? I think those are things that can be worked out. That, that's, that's what we do as the city, right? And that's what we do in government is that when we are looking at policy changes, we figure out how we can make it work. And this is being driven by actual research by medical professionals. And last time I checked, I, I'm not a medical professional. However, I'm going to listen to those that are. Um, 
And so I, I, you know, hear the things about the storage. We, we uh, experienced some of that on Wednesday for those of us that were there, um, you know, for the migrant encampment. Um, and, you know, I worked personally with some of our folks from Dottie about the, the, you know, reuse of tents and storage and where things go and all of those things. And I have to say that I really appreciate the partnership that the city departments have shown in that in that place and i know that it is possible so i see this as a public health issue um the information is there the medical documentation is there and i want to make sure that that we are not unnecessarily causing additional harm to people i think we're, we're talking about okay let's wait so that people can stay as warm as possible as they can. And yes, they have options. Even if, even if there is no um, sweep happening, they still have the option to go into a warming center when they open up. That's still an option. So um, I, I just wanna applaud you for um, those sponsors, all four of you for, for the work that you've done on this. Um, and I'm happy to continue to lend my support um, and engage in those conversations and um, be as helpful as possible. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Madam President. Thank you very much. Councilman Flynn. Uh, thank you, Madam President. Uh, when this was at committee, one of the things that disappoints me now, and thank you to Councilwoman Parity for uh, the email over the weekend that, that, that has changed, uh, it would have allowed uh, DPD to continue uh, issuing citations or advisements uh, in spite of the weather conditions. I, I'm disappointed that that has now We've chosen to keep that in the bill uh, because I want to point out that issuing a citation, let alone an advisement, does not require the person to immediately relocate, nor does it result in an arrest. The data we were provided uh, through the uh, DPD is that in the 12 years of the uh, urban camping ban ordinance, a total of only eight people have actually been arrested over that time. Uh, so we're not, we're not throwing people in jail for violating the camping ban. To say that my officers in Southwest Denver cannot do an advisement or even issue a citation if necessary, and very few of those have been issued also, if it's 32 degrees or less, uh, I don't think is a good provision to have in the bill, and I don't support it, uh, among many other reasons I don't support this bill. Exactly. Uh, the overriding reason is that I believe that this is going to result, I believe this will result in more deaths on the street. The longer we leave people on the street, in the freezing cold, in unsanitary and unhealthy conditions, in dangerous conditions, the more deaths we will have. The weather data that uh, we were provided over the weekend, and that will be revised with, the, with this amendment from four hours to two hours, really showed me last night, although I'll, I will re-look at the data with that two-hour uh, instead of the four-hour provision, will really limit much more than the sponsors, I think, are willing to acknowledge. The fact is that even if it climbs above 32 degrees, even if it gets to 40, 50 degrees, 
on a winter day. It doesn't do that until noon, one o'clock in the afternoon. That's too late to start a cleanup. And in fact, I would not want to start one at that point in the day because then one of the common complaints we have is that people who are working, who have jobs, or who are out getting something to eat or panhandling or whatever they're doing, they're away from their tent. And if we started something at one o'clock in the afternoon and they're not there, they, they could very well lose more stuff than you can imagine. By starting at 6 a.m. and 7 a.m., we have a very good chance of meeting every person who is in that encampment and giving them these opportunities to store or to move. I do wanna point out, at least in my district, I don't come downtown all that often except for these meetings anymore. But uh, in my district, when it's 32 degrees or below, I see individuals who are homeless out and about when it's 20 degrees, when it's 15 degrees, when it's 30 degrees. They're already out, they don't spend the whole day in their tent. So I don't think it's necessary to impose a hard and fast marker below which temperature we may not do this needed work to keep people safe, to keep them from unhealthy conditions, from hazardous conditions. I believe the windows of opportunity, given the temperature records we were shown, are going to be very, very few, especially when you have to schedule them seven days ahead and post, and then check the, the National Weather Service for 48 hours ahead of that, and then actually come to today, because everybody knows in Denver, and you, know, you check the forecast right now, come back on Wednesday and tell me if, if it was accurate, right? Uh, we'd have to hire Rube Goldberg to be our scheduler under those conditions. That's probably a reference that <laughs> no one knows. Google Rube Goldberg. Uh, because the filters and the traps that you would have to navigate to find a 10-hour minimum window of opportunity where it's above 32 degrees are going to be much, much fewer than we're imagining right now, just from my look at the weather records that we were sent yesterday. Um, I believe that we should leave these decisions in the hands of the professionals that we've hired to do this work. I know that we have canceled and postponed cleanups in the past on, based on weather conditions. I don't think that's a, a, a judgment that we should make from this dais. I think we should trust our public health, our safety, and our public works professionals as to when these need to be carried out and to do it humanely. With that, I will, uh, I will not vote to publish this bill, and I would ask my colleagues similarly uh, not to, to vote not to publish the bill. Thank you. Thank you. Councilman Sandoval? Thank you. Thank you. I had my, my, my um, mic off. So I, my big question is, um, last Wednesday in Northwest Denver, we had a, we sheltered 270 people from a migrant encampment that was on 27th and Zunai. And I worked on as the council representative, I sat in meetings um, since October to plan that encampment. And during Christmas break, I usually take some time off with my family and I was in five meetings a day planning that encampment removal. And I don't think that um, if this ordinance would have 
is would have passed, we would have been able to go out there. And I will say in the morning, it was cold. It was cold. I was cold. I got up there at seven o'clock in the morning because I was wanted to be make sure that I was with my constituents and that I was a witness. And it was cold. I had hats, gloves. I gave my gloves to my um, council aide, actually, because she didn't have hers on. And by the time we were done, it was warm. And I had taken my hat off and I had, um, I had shed some layers. So I, I will say that I will pass, I will vote for this tonight to be published. I do think that the, there's lots of good in here. I think that we're all wanting to do the same thing. I do not want people sleeping in tents in Denver. I don't want sleeping, I don't go winter camping because it's too cold. I go summer camping. I barely go camping at the end of August because it's too cold for me personally. And so I can say, I do not want people sleeping in tents. And I will say that one of the things that um, I did not, I would not close that encampment on last Wednesday until I got commitment from the mayor that we could house every single person that was at the encampment, every single person. And the next day, several people showed up who had gone to work. It's true, they had. And the next day, on Thursday, there were several people who did not have made it to shelter. And I got contacted from the mayor's office. One of my colleagues up here contacted them and we got them in shelter, period. That was my commitment. And so I think that there is really good work within this ordinance that keeps people safe. And I do not want people sleeping outside I also have concerns. I have been working on another encampment. It's not in my council district. It's in council district nine, but it's like right at the border of my council district. Um, that it's full of migrant and migrant families. And we would be cleaning it in next week. And I want every single person at that encampment to be able to go into shelter. And that has been my agreement that I will not work on closing that encampment. You will not get me signed off on that. You will not get me a supporter of that. You will not ask my colleagues to get me to support until every single person can go into shelter. And I disagree with some of my colleagues' comments up here that says we have to trust the system. The system has been broken. I don't always trust. I am somebody who questions a lot of things and it takes a really long time for me to trust a system. I have been burned by the system. My family has been burned by the system. And I think a lot of BIPOC people get burned by the system. And so I don't inherently trust a system. Um, so I think that we have, in my four years, we've made lots of mistakes. And I do not, and I wanna just apologize for those mistakes that we've made on the record. And so I will be voting yes for this to be published tonight. And I just wanna tell the bill sponsors, I still have a lot of concerns. And so, but I do want you to get published. Um, I'll work with you over the next week to see if we can get some of my concerns being met. So I don't know how I'll end up voting on Monday, next Monday, but I do want to say thank you for having this conversation because this is something that was brought to us as somebody who's in my second term. This concern has been a concern of mine for a long time out there in the freezing cold. And after being out there on Wednesday at seven o'clock, I am so glad we did not start talking to people in tents until like nine and it was warmer. So with that, thank you, Bill Sponsors. You have my vote for tonight, and then I will continue to work on it with you with the next seven days. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you. Councilwoman Parity. 
Thank you so much. Um, I just want to be really clear that it is not true, despite the great efforts that we've been making for a couple of months, that everyone who wants to be indoors can be indoors. There are many reasons for that. Um, someone may have a pet. Someone may have possessions that they don't want to entrust to the care of the City Department of Transit and Infrastructure. Not disparaging the work of that department, but I can understand that. I see that particularly among folks who have recently been evicted. They're living with everything they have that they're trying to tote around to a tent. They're new to this scenario, and no, they don't want to hand over their last photo album or something like that to be you know, taken to storage. Um, there are a lot of reasons why people can't always access shelter. They may be in the grip of a mental health crisis at that moment. That does not mean they should be forced from their tents into the cold, as has been the habit in our city. Um, the, I want to um, make one thing clear to Councilman Flynn, the back and forth around citations and arrests. The reason that there have only been eight arrests under the camping ban is that the primary way that it's enforced, and I've talked, I've spoken to every homeless outreach officer in the city about this, is that they go, they contact people and they say, you will be arrested if you don't move along. And so people have no choice, they pack up, they move along, whether it's cold, et cetera. Um, and so including all forms of camping ban enforcement short of arrest um, is what will keep people in their tent until it dips above 32 degrees. We are not talking about a radical measure here. We are literally talking about the coldest days of the year in Denver, Colorado, allowing someone to stay in a tent that is their only shelter. Um, I appreciate my colleagues. I appreciate the agencies. Um, I will do everything possible over the next week to get this to a point that more of us are comfortable with. Um, but the bottom line is that, um, as we have heard from health experts over, I think, three different committee meetings now, and I've seen photos of this, um, people lose fingers, toes, every single cold snap in Denver, people who are unhoused are in our major hospitals with severe frostbite. I would not wish that on anybody. Um, I cannot actually unsee some of the pictures that I've seen of those kinds of injuries. Um, and in worst case scenarios, people do die of frostbite and weather exposure in our city. Last point I wanna say is that um, we have an email from the mayor's administration, again, despite our tremendous efforts, the effort of um, Councilmember Sandoval last week, the mayor's team and hosts running themselves ragged. There's no question how hard we are working to get people indoors in our city. But as of now, a quote from the mayor's administration yesterday, for all new arrivals, we are being crystal clear that there's no more room in our shelter system. It is too cold to be outside and traveling onward is their best and really only option at this point. That is not for lack of trying, we are, we are sheltering thousands of people at this moment. We are doing our best. We are not managing to get everyone indoors because we do not have the resources and the capacity, even at the end of this really historic sprint. That's the situation. That is why you will still see folks outdoors in our city. Um, and so this is the bare minimum of humanity to protect those folks that do not have another option. Thank you. Thank you. Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Council President. I, I appreciate the opportunity first to engage in this discussion. Um, I think we've heard from health professionals across the board uh, on this topic. Um, we've, we've heard from the specific um, health um, um, authority on the issue of encampment resolution um, from the leadership of downtown, uh, from the Denver um, uh, Department of Health and Environment. And they have stated very clearly that this law, this bill, this ordinance uh, will impact their ability to do their jobs and to continue to save lives of folks living in encampments. That's what they have stated. Um, we should listen to those who are currently doing this work. We've heard from the police chief, whose role also is to manage this process and to save lives. And they've been doing this for years. 
under multiple, gen uh, multiple administrations. And the police chief himself has stated once again that this complicates their process um, for saving lives during cold weather. Fire chief has said the same thing. Dottie has said the same thing. Each of the departments involved in this process have stated that this bill does not make it easier, less complex, and quicker for us to save lives for folks who are living and quite frankly dying throughout District 9 primarily, where the largest encampments exist. No. Where people are dying in District 9, where the majority of the large encampments are occurring, whether it's on the streets, whether it's in people's alleys, or in front of businesses. I do not support this bill because it does not provide a clear, simpler process to save lives for those who are living on our streets. I've shared my commitment from the beginning of my race, from when I ran for office, and since I've been a Denver City Council member. My sister died homeless on the streets. She not once during her struggles over the 10 years, we did everything we could to save her. She not once asked for anyone to fight for her right to live on the streets. Once she was able to come to her senses and take her medication or go to the hospital, the first thing she asked for was for housing. I'm listening to the 82% of folks, you the viewers and folks in this, this room right here, that voted to not end the camping ban. We have been listening clearly to folks in District 9, and I can assure you the supermajority of the residents of District 9 have called and have asked me to not move forward this bill. I'll be voting against it because I think it complicates our process. I believe the complexity in this has conflicts with Lyle. The amendment that we are, that district, not District 9 Circuit, um, um, the Ninth Circuit has provided for Western states as far as how do we engage with encampments. The Lyle Amendment is very clear. There are parts of what we are talking about here that does not, that is not congruent, that goes beyond Lyle and will cause decision-making within our city to become more complex than it should. I'm encouraging my colleagues today to not publish this bill, to vote no, and I'm encouraging them, if it is published today, I'm encouraging them to vote no next week. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Councilwoman Ovidas. Thank you, Council President. Um, I wanted to say a few more words as I think about this. And I think that um, passing this would maybe feel good and feel like a pat in the back, but I do question whether it actually saves lives or saves frostbite. And I think one thing I didn't see in the study, and if I'm wrong, like please send me the data, is that leaving people on the streets in tents is actually gonna save their life or save their limb rather than putting them into shelter or encouraging them. Um, I think asking people to move will encourage them to seek that shelter um, because it already makes them pack up their tent or move some of their things. And I don't think that that last family photo album is worth their life. And so that's where I'm at, but I will um, give this another week to see some more of that data and really look into those numbers. But as it stands right now, I feel like I just want to know we're actually saving lives, not just making ourselves feel better because we did something nice. So thank you, Council President. Thank you. Councilwoman Romero-Campbell. Thank you, Madam President. Um, 
I mean, I'm really struggling. I think this is a conversation that we need to have. It weighs heavy on my heart. It weighs heavy um, as I think about what is happening in the district that, you know, that I represent right now. And we are at first reading. Um, I don't know if it makes sense to continue the conversation or go back to the drawing board and find a way that we can be more effective and get to the outcomes that we are looking for. We're talking about saving lives. Um, I don't know about you, but when we talk about children and what this would mean and not necessarily giving us a way to bring young people and children indoors, I, I struggle with that. Um, I think we are having the conversation. Yes, I'm not sure that this is the right way to go about achieving the goals that we want to achieve. Um, for that reason, I will, I don't think that this should move forward in the first reading. I'd like to um, be able to continue the conversation, but not with the end of trying to modify the complexities and the confusion and the um, the questions that we have right now, I don't think are going to go away or get any easier in a week. And I don't think it's going to make it any clearer for our um, agencies to be able to effectively do their work. So thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Councilwoman Lewis. <clears throat> thank you, Madam President. I just wanted to uh, make a few corrections here. Um, the Ninth Circuit is um, not over Colorado, and Lyle is a settlement. It's not a case. It's not an amendment. Um, <clears throat> and I really wanted to take the opportunity for us to level set. We're talking about a 12 degrees difference here. Um, and we've heard directly from those, if you all might remember from the original presentation, that we work with Be Connected to get information directly from those that were actually sleeping in our streets. And what we heard from those who were actually sleeping in our streets is that they wanted this. Um, this isn't coming from Councilwoman Parity. This isn't coming from myself, um, Councilwoman Torres, or from Cashman. This is coming from those that are directly impacted by this. Um, and what we are asking is that, as you um, pointed out, Councilwoman Sawyer, that we take a humane approach to how we are dealing with folks. Um, it's how we are dealing with folks when temperatures are freezing. Um, what we have learned is that we just don't want to expose people unnecessarily um, to a potentially frostbite or to, to the loss of limb or to death, quite frankly. Um, and what we have learned from folks who are actually living in our streets is when they are swept in these freezing temperatures that their belongings get wet and they get sick. And they don't get sick for just a few days like many of us may because we have homes to go back to. They get sick for long periods of time um, because they're sleeping in our streets. And so I would just hope that we would really come back to like centering the individuals that we're talking about here. I do know that, that all of the bill sponsors are absolutely committed to figuring out what the concerns that you might have um, Councilwoman Sandoval that the mayor in his administration might have um, to figure out where we might be able to find um, some alignment here. And so we're looking forward to doing just that. Um, but this definitely is the right approach. And this is the way in which we can save folks lives um, and really free up um, some capacity as well in our hospitals. And so thank you so much. Thank you, Councilwoman Gilmore. Thank you, Council President. Um, I've been listening to all of the questions, um, great questions by my colleagues and um, the answers by the agencies. And I 
just have to reflect back on serving for coming up on nine years here and council has never been adequately communicated with around what is the decision-making factor for a lot of these decisions. There has not been the rule shared with council before. And now we have a new administration who has decided to take a very different stance in addressing people who are experiencing homelessness and the commitment that the administration has made is that everyone who is experiencing homelessness now on the streets of Denver, the administration will figure out how to get them into housing, but we know that we're only now getting people into shelter. And so that is a promise that was made by Mayor Johnston and the administration. We as council have been trying to work in good partnership with the administration to accomplish that. Hence, last year, us approving almost $50 million for us to get people into sheltering. We still do not have a solid plan on how we're gonna get them into housing, but through this whole entire conversation and the commitment by the administration, I am unable to reconcile how with the broad ability that this bill already allows the Department of Public Health and Environment and the manager of to make those decisions, why we would not halt a sweep or an encampment cleanup when it is 32 degrees outside and it is freezing. That is what we're talking about here. And it's going to force the city to work more collectively, not only agencies, but with our partners, because we are going to have more encampments on our streets, given the data that we've seen and we've got to change up how we're doing this. And so I am less concerned about a rat infestation. I am more concerned about somebody who has been struggling with addiction from the time that they were in their teenage years, their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and now they're 60 years old and they're living on a tent in our city and they have all kinds of health concerns, but now they're worried about getting shuffled when it's freezing out and having to move. And we know now there is not a place for everybody to go, even though since July, we have been promising that. And so we're gonna have to figure out how we reconcile this and we do not break the very tenuous trust if we even have the trust of folks who are experiencing homelessness in our city or our newcomer population either. And so I, after the testimony tonight and the answers provided and what I have seen over my time in elected office, I'm gonna be supporting this, moving it on to second reading. Thank you, Council President. Thank you very much. Um, 
uh, I just want to make a couple comments. Um, I want to thank uh, the other co-sponsors. It's, it's rare, I think, that we get four council members co-sponsoring a bill. That's a third of our body um, that agree on a particular um, uh, process um, outcome and working together to find something that even we agree on. And so I want to thank uh, them for being very engaged um, uh, since we began this conversation in August. Um, it's illogical for me uh, to think about telling people to move when it's freezing. It's illogical for us to say that we cannot legislate a temperature standard that medical professionals have testified to being necessary. Um, Denver's trying to turn a curve with over a thousand additional shelter spaces. And we've largely supported that vision. And that's what offers us a light, um, potentially from shuffling people from one block to the next. Um, but for me, this has been most critically about the physical harm, our efforts to clear an encampment may produce and exposing people to the freezing cold is not a small thing. Um, this language forces us to justify unique circumstances for creating that risk. Um, it solves nothing to expose folks to frostbite under the banner of our deep interest in their health and safety. That just doesn't reconcile for me. Um, we haven't had unilateral barriers to clearing an encampment for other reasons, including gun violence uh, infestations. And we've seen both of those done. Um, this asks for language and justification. And it says as a city, we're demonstrating to you that we've weighed the risk of exposure to temperatures to that of other risks, and we've arrived at this decision. Um, I am uh, proud to keep uh, on as a sponsor of this bill, um, and I will ask Madam Secretary now for a roll call on Bill 1960 as amended. Alvitas? Aye. Flynn? Nay. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Nay. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? No. Watson? No. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the votes and announce the results. Four nays, nine ayes. Nine ayes. Council Bill 1960 has been ordered published as amended. That concludes the items to be called out. All bills for introduction are ordered published. Council members, remember this is a consent or a block vote, and you'll need to vote aye. Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put the resolutions for adoption and the bills on final consideration for final passage on the floor? Yes, Council President. I move that the resolutions be adopted and the bills on final consideration be placed upon final consideration and do pass in a block for the second, for the, for the following items, 1972, 1973, 1980, 1982, 1974, 1976, 1978, 24-0003.
uh, Council President, do you mind if I uh, move to? Uh, well, I, I'm happy to read it. I'm sorry. Is this not yours? Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Um, for some reason, I apologize. I think I'm in the wrong spot on the script. Ah, your proclamation is right in front of you in that yeah. blue. Okay. Uh, I moved it. I think I'm supposed to move that it gets adopted first not before yet. I read it. Just read the proclamation. Oh, all first. right. <laughs> it's my first week here. Uh, <laughs> Proclamation 24003, a proclamation honoring the Reverend Brian Henderson and the First Baptist Church. Whereas in 2012, Reverend Henderson developed a three-year plan to revitalize First Baptist Church's ministry, which was in danger of shutting down. And whereas Reverend, Brian Henderson, or Reverend Henderson negotiated creative ways to co-share First Baptist's historic facility with not-for-profit organizations, and he created a social enterprise with a nonprofit partner in the building that provided employment training for newly arrived refugees and immigrants. And three community choruses have found a home at First Baptist Church for rehearsals and concerts. And whereas in the face of the country's gunfire ep epidemic and with congregational leadership, First Baptist Church became a partner with the National Soul Box Project, providing education to the larger metro area community. And Whereas First Baptist Church became the first of two safe outdoor spaces in the city and county of Denver, and the church partnered with the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative to provide parking for people living in their vehicles, and the church became a part-time shelter for houseless women, and in partnership with the community uh, nonprofit, a soup kitchen was opened at the church serving people who are houseless. And whereas Jeanette Vizguerra, named by Time Magazine as one of America's most influential people, found sanctuary at the First Baptist Church. And whereas, Reverend Henderson led the church to participate in its first Pride Fests and organized the annual interfaith Pride service for the last 10 years and contributed articles to Outfront, one of the Rocky Mountains' leading media outlets to the LGBTQ plus community. And whereas, with State Senator Stedman, and State Senator Moreno as his sponsors, Reverend Henderson served for several years offering prayers as a chaplain to the Colorado Senate. And the church is a hub of activity for legislators and advocacy groups who meet there during sessions. And whereas, with the, Colorado, with the support of the Colorado State Historic Fund, improvement projects have been completed to the First Baptist Church's historic edifice. And Whereas Reverend Henderson has served on numerous boards, including Capitol Hill United Neighbors, Capitol Hill United Ministries, Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, Denver Lions Club, and Denver Lions Foundation. And whereas Reverend Henderson is now departing First Baptist Church after 12 years of faithful service. Now, therefore, be it proclaimed by the Council of the City and County of Denver, Section 1 that the Council of the City and County of Denver acknowledge Reverend Brian Henderson and the First Baptist Church uh, and their contributions in the City of Denver. Section two, that the clerk of the City and County of Denver shall affix the seal of the City and County of Denver to this proclamation and that a copy be transmitted to Reverend Brian Henderson and to the First Baptist Church of Denver. Excellent, thank you. Uh, now your motion to adopt. I think I got it this time. I moved the <laughs> proclamation 24-0003 be adopted. 
Thank you very much. And that's been moved and seconded. We'll start with comments um, before we vote. Uh, we'll start with you, Councilman Hines. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, Reverend Henderson, I, um, I, I thank you very much for giving me, giving me the honor of attending your service yesterday, the final service at First Baptist Church, um, and, uh, and for the honor of uh, being able to read, I, I would say a preview of the proclamation, but it was the entire proclamation. It just happened to be one day early. Um, it, uh, uh, I, I have known you for years uh, because I, um, in one of the whereas clauses, you talk about advocacy and getting engaged and involved uh, with, um, uh, with the political sphere. And I intended uh, meetings in, uh, in the First Baptist Church uh, for several different advocacy groups, uh, Colorado Social Legislation Committee. I know several legislators would have events there as well. Um, and um, I, I just, I am humbled by the amount of outreach and service that you and First Baptist Church provides to our community. Um, you are willing to, 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 to take a risk um, with the first uh, uh, safe outdoor space site in the Denver metro area. I, I know I received more than a thousand emails in opposition to the safe outdoor space sites, um, but we took a risk together. And once that, uh, once that model, once people realized what the model really was or is, uh, they said, oh, why are you taking it down? <laughs> the complaints that we got was that we were, uh, we were dismantling the Safe Outdoor Space site. And that was because part of the negotiation was that it would be temporary, that it would only be there for six months. Um, and while that was temporary, um, that was one chapter that closed, but you continue to open more chapters, safe parking uh, sites. Uh, the, the idea, the hope to, to, uh, to, to build affordable housing uh, there uh, in, uh, on your property too. And um, yesterday's scripture uh, was uh, interesting. It was, a, as I mentioned yesterday, it was a, it was a diversion. I, have, I grew up Episcopalian. Um, I went to a Methodist university and uh, I've never heard Genesis 1-1 be used as the, the, the word of the day, the, the scripture for the week. And, um, but it is about beginnings. And uh, we have now here a new beginning. For you, uh, you have a new calling and a new beginning. For B First Baptist Church, we have a new beginning as well. Um, so I wanna thank you for your dedication, for your service uh, to Denver, to the community, uh, to First Baptist Church, and uh, thank you for being a friend all these years. Thank you, Council President. Thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you so much. I remember coming into contact with you over the years because Spring Institute's in your in your building as well. Um, but I. Uh, looked up a prior, a past article that the Westward had written about you that was um, uh, so vulnerable and so revealing and so honest. And if folks haven't seen that, it's from 2013. Um, I encourage you to do it because it 
um, it showcases, I think, what um, what we need in terms of breaking down uh, the humanity of our leaders. Um, and I think you did that in such um, a beautiful and vulnerable way in order to demonstrate both what you've watched change in your own life and what you needed to draw strength from um, and how what you've seen Denver change uh, into over the many years that you've been involved here. And so um, we wouldn't be the city we are without your leadership. And I thank you for that. Um, and as, a, a, as an individual and as a human, um, uh, I hope that um, you come away from your experience feeling more rich, more full um, and more supported than you had um, in maybe your earliest years. So. Thank you so much for the work that you've done um, in Denver and, and for your congregation. Um, Madam Secretary, roll call, please. Alvidrez. Aye. Flynn. Aye. Gilmore. Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez. Aye. Hines. Aye. Cashman. Aye. Lewis. Aye. Parody. Aye, with gratitude. Romero Campbell. Aye. Sandoval. Aye. Sawyer? Aye. Did you not hear me? Aye. Oh, sorry. I. Okay. Sawyer or Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. It is hard to 13 hear. 13 eyes. Thank you very much. 13 eyes. Proclamation three has been adopted and we have time for proclamation acceptance. Councilman Hines, please invite up our recipient. Uh, Reverend Henderson, would you please uh, honor us with a few minutes of your words? Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Councilman Hines. Thank you to the city council. Thank you to those of you who are here. Thank you to our moderator, our past moderator, chair of our human relations committee, and my personal minister, the Reverend Deanna Flayhide. Um, I, I like to say at First Baptist that there is far more we can do together than any of us can do on our own. And I know sometimes what we try to do together is hard and we disagree. Mm -hmm. And yet, as long as we continue to do what we can together, I know that we can make progress. And so may we as a congregation, may we as a city, may you as a city council continue to do what you can together because together, we will do far more that can be done than if it was not done. So thank you, and it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you for your work. Now I'm sure Councilman Hines will meet you in the hallway to give you a copy of your proclamation. We appreciate you coming tonight. Uh, we have three public hearings tonight. Note that a public hearing was conducted already on Bill 1483, um, so there won't be any further public input considered for that item, um, but we will, um, uh, for those uh, participating in person um, for our, our other hearings, uh, when called upon, please come to the podium. On the monitor on the wall, you'll see your time counting down. For those participating virtually, when called upon, please wait until our host promotes you to speaker. When you're promoted, please accept this promotion. Turn on your camera if you have one and your microphone. All speakers should begin their remarks by telling council your name and city of residence. And if you feel comfortable doing so, your home address. If you've signed up to answer questions only, please state your name and note you are available, excuse me, for questions of council. Speakers will have three minutes. There is no yielding of time. If translation is needed, you'll be given an additional three minutes for your comments to be interpreted. 
Speakers must stay on the topic of the hearing and direct your comments to council as a whole. Please refrain from profane or obscene speech and refrain from individual or personal attacks. Um, our first bill, uh, Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put 1483 on the floor for final passage? Yes, I move that Council Bill 23-1483 be placed upon final consideration and do pass. Thank you very much. Please note that um, a public hearing was already held for this bill on December 4th. As a reminder, council members, if you have any questions on Council Bill 1483, we will need to reopen the public hearing. So please chime in if you have questions to ask on this bill, and I'll give you a moment to do that. Okay, we will move to comments by members of council on 1483. Um, and I'll start with the council person for District 1, Councilwoman Sandoval. Thank you, Madam President. Um, colleagues, in your Registrar, you have the, um, the updated um, information from Steve Charbonneau regarding community mediation. And unfortunately, um, my community was not able to come up with a good neighbor agreement for this location. Um, I think that everyone did their good faith effort and it just was not accomplished. Um, but I will say that at the last minute, um, not long ago uh, at 5.30, I got, in, I got an email from Community Planning and Development. And within community planning and development under section 11, article 11 of use limitations. So it's section 11.10 um, and it's C. It says drive through facilities adjacent to residential zone districts. There shall be no glare from permanent lighting or vehicle headlights project projected onto an abutting residential zone district to ensure glare is controlled, all external lights shall have fully shielded fixtures. Light trespass onto adjacent residential uses shall not exceed 0.3 foot candles. I'm not quite sure what that means, but we could um, we could Google it. No device that amplifies sound shall be designed or operated that the amplified sound exceeds the city's noise ordinance standards on any private property zone lot located within a residential zone district beyond the boundaries of the zone law on which the drive-through facility is operated. Any drive-through facility located on a zone law that is adjacent to a residential zone district, which has any portion of the facility located 85 feet or less from the residential zone district, may only be open during the hours of 5.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. Sunday through Thursday and 10.30 a.m. to midnight Friday and Saturday. The subsections drive-through facility standards apply only to the drive-through facilities that commence operations after June 1st, 2006. So part of the good neighbor agreement that we couldn't get to um, a resolution on was the hours of operation. And so there is actually um, protection within the Denver zoning code um, this could not stay open. It could only stay open till midnight, Friday and Saturday, and it could only stay open till 11 o'clock um, Sunday through Thursday. So I thought as all of you contemplate whether you're going to support this or not, that that was important information that you had. Um, with that, I just, I wish that my community would have come together to um, get a good neighbor agreement. I think they're really important. I do know that Raising Canes did submit their building 
um, in, in Legistar. So if you want to see the wall that would be built, it's there for all of your um, uh, review as well. And I'll just say I got tons of conflicting um, responses on this one. I have family who lives not far from here, and they liked the updates that federal were getting to create the safety that there's a median going to be built along uh, Federal Boulevard. Um, so I just have to say that this one has been really challenging for me because I have heard conflicting um, responses from my community. I have responses that people do want this, this project and then I have responses that people don't want this project. Um, and so this one has just been tough. So I'll just in there and I'm not going to lobby none of any of your votes. Unfortunately, not tonight. Normally I do because this one I'm just going to have to follow my heart and vote on as we all vote. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Councilwoman Thank you Madam President. Um, and is it okay if I, I I'm, I'm not wanting to ask anything of the public, but just want to just make sure I heard Councilwoman Pro Tem Sandoval's explanation of the code correctly? I could also forward it via email. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You wanted to explain it again? Yeah, no, I just I just wanted to just clarify what I heard because yeah, that I mean I have received lots of communication from community members around the issue of the hours of operation and I know that is what we had discussed um, during the public hearing and I, I um, agreed a lot with, with the community members of that um, issue and the inconsistencies of different times of oper hours of operation for the different um, canes chicken that are across the metro area there are, there are differing times and i was curious as to why that um, during the last um, council meeting on this so um, just to clarify um, councilman pro tem is that right now so in 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 the code it says that they can only stay open until 11 p.m. during the weekdays and on the weekends until 12 p.m. Correct, because it's next to a residential zone district, it abuts a residential zone district, correct. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure I heard that all correctly. Thank yep. you. Thank you, Madam President. I just want to follow up on, on that. And again, not to ask a question, but to observe that this would have been useful information to have at the hearing because the uh, applicant well, is in, even in the good neighbor agreement negotiations that we saw here uploaded in Legistar that, that didn't reach total agreement. Uh, the applicant was stating its intention to stay open until 1 a.m., uh, which is not clearly not allowed. So I just want to point out that uh, should this be approved, the applicant will have to live with that. Thank you. Mike is not on. Thank you. Um, what I've heard is um, one, some benefit in the turnover of a vacant property, um, the median for federal boulevard safety, which is um, a pretty big deal um, in controlling when and where people can turn um, uh, onto oncoming traffic. Um, and then the zone protections that Councilwoman Sandoval has clarified. Um, and so uh, in spite of not having a GNA, um, I will be voting to support tonight. 
Um, seeing no one else in queue, Madam Secretary, roll call on Council Bill 1483. Alvidris? No. Flynn? Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Nay. Hines? Cashman? Lewis? Nay. Parody? Nay. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Nay. Sawyer? No. Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. Six nay. Six eyes and six nays. Yep, that's what I've got too. Um, six eyes, Council Bill 1483 has failed. Um, thanks everyone for being here tonight um, uh, and for carrying this over since December. Uh, our next bill, Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put Council Bill 1714 on the floor for final passage? I move that Council Bill 23-1714 be placed upon final consideration and be passed. Thank you, and that's been moved and seconded. The required public hearing for Council Bill 23-1714 is open. May we have the staff report? Uh, good evening, Council. My name is Will Prince with Community Planning and Development, and I'll be presenting uh, the case for 1645 <coughs> North Grape Street. Um, we'll go over the request, the location and context, the process, as well as the review criteria. Um, this property is currently zoned USUC, Urban Center, Urban Single Unit C, and the request is rezoned to Urban Single, single Unit C1 to allow for ADU. It's currently 6,500 square feet in a single unit residential property um, with a minimum 5,500 square feet zone lot. As for the location and the context, this is located in Council District 9 in the South Park Hill neighborhood. Again, it is currently existed USUC, uh, surrounding USUCE, USUCH, and as well as a two unit zone district to the south. It's currently zoned, uh, or excuse me, current land use is single unit residential, which is the majority of the area with some multi-unit unit to the south. Uh, you can see the subject property here on the right with similar properties uh, in the neighborhood on the bottom photo. As for the process, this was received as informational notice in September, uh, was heard by the planning board hearing uh, on the 1st of November, and today uh, we have our the city council public hearing. There's been one public comment made in uh, support of this rezoning. As for the review criteria, um, we'll review all five criteria of the Denver Zoning Code. Consistency, consistency with adopted plans. Uh, three, three plans are applicable here. Of course, the two citywide plans as well as the East Area Plan. Uh, for Comp Plan 2040, it meets equity goal of creating a greater mix of housing and options in every neighborhood, as well as promoting infill development where infrastructure and services are already in place. For Blueprint Denver, it is identified as urban, so its context does not change. And there's also low residential where you have prominent single and two unit uses as well as accessory dwelling units. And is identified as all other areas of the city. And lastly, with Blueprint Denver, 
uh, land use and built form housing policy number four includes diversity housing choice through the expansion of accessory dwelling units through all, throughout all residential areas. As for East Area Plan, uh, it was adopted in 2020, and this calls out in particular that East Area neighbors are inclusive places by thoughtfully integrating compatible design missing middle and including accessory, dweller, accessory dwelling units throughout uh, all locations. This rezoning will meet the uniformity of district regulations uh, by, by following the district building form use design and regulations. We'll implement, uh, we'll help improve We'll help further public health, safety, and welfare by implementing our adopted plans and adding additional housing unit. And as for justifying circumstances, the city adopted plans as all the three that were provided and uh, discussed. And we'll meet consistency with neighborhood context, <coughs> district purpose and intent with the USUC1 zone district. And based on the information provided here tonight, as well as just the staff report, CPD recommends approval based that all findings have been met. Uh, happy to answer questions and the applicant should be available virtually. What's the applicant's name? Brendan Tripp. Thank you very much. Uh, we have two individuals that signed up to speak this evening. Our first signed up is uh, Todd Woody. He does not appear to be on Zoom. Is he in chambers? Okay, we'll move on to our second, uh, Jesse Paris. Yes, good evening, members of council, those watching at home, those in the council chambers. My name is Jessica LaShawn Paris, and I'm representing for Black Star Action Movement for Self-Defense, Positive Action Commitment for Social Change, as well as the Unity Party of Colorado, the Northeast Residence Council, Frontline Black News, Shabaka's Black Experience Enhanced the Revolutionary Agenda. And I reside in District 8, Chantel Lewis's district, or District 8, at the Roach Bedbug and Mice-Infested Fusion Studios. Um, I'm in support of this ADU, as I've stated previously throughout the years that I've been tuning into city council for the past eight years. Um, for at least six of those years, five or six of those years, I've been in support of the ADUs. I supported them when I ran for city council at large in 2019 and got almost 15,000 votes with no money. And I still support them in 2024. Um, the only question is, again, um, are these being used for short-term rentals? I know the applicant is not obliged to disclose this information, but there are certain members that tune into city council, besides myself, that would like to know um, the answer to these questions. And also, what are they gonna be using this for? Is it for an aging family member, um, uh, something of the sort? If you can answer those questions, that those two questions, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um... That concludes our speakers. Are there questions for members of council on 1714? Councilman Flynn. Thank you. Uh, William, could you, uh, this is one of those rare blocks in South Park Hill and Bay Park Hill generally that does not have an alley. Sorry, it does not have a what? Alley. Alley, correct. And so with the recently revised ADU, detached ADU standards, the way I read it in your staff report, this would require a rear setback of 20 feet At least that's what it says in the staff report. The rear, page eight. The rear setback. Yeah, rear no alley. Twenty feet. Yes, that would be correct. Okay, I just want to make sure that the applicant is, is the applicant present. Yeah, he's on Zoom. Brandon, are you there? I just want to make sure that the applicant is aware of that. Yes, I'm here, and we're we're aware of that. Okay, thank you very much. 
That's all I have. Okay, great. Thank you. Seeing no more questions, the public hearing is closed. Comments by members of council on Bill uh, 1714. And I lost track of what district that was in. Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Council President. Uh, I have to say, as I've been saying for last six months, I support ADUs. I think this makes sense. Um, I, I appreciate the, uh, the process uh, that you went through. I wish that process didn't exist. And guess what? That process may not exist much longer. Um, but um, I will be supporting this, and I will ask for council to support as well. Thank you very much. Seeing no one else in queue. Madam Secretary, roll call, please, on Bill 1714. Alvidrez. Aye. Flynn. Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Aye. Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? Aye. Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. 13 ayes. 13 ayes. Bill 1714 has 14 has passed. Thank you, Will. Um, Councilwoman Gilmore, you put our next bill up um, for final passage, uh, 1836. Yes, Council President. I move that Council Bill 1836 be placed upon final consideration and do pass. Thank you very much. And that's been moved and seconded. The required public hearing for Council Bill 1836 is open. May we have the staff report? Let me know if you can hear me. This is actually my first time presenting. Uh, I'm, Just my project, name is... and you'll be great. Okay, great. <laughs> my name is Fritz Quasson. I'm with uh, Community Planning Development. I'm here to present the rezoning application for 434 South High Street, going from USUC to USUC1. I will be going over the request, location context, the process and review criteria, and finally staff recommendation. The request uh, property is at 434 South High Street. It is a 6,240 square foot property with a single unit home and a detached garage. The request is to rezone from USUC to USUC1 in order to allow an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, to look at the location and context, property is in Council District 6, Councilmember Paul Cashman, and in the Washington Park Statistical Neighborhood. Existing zoning is USUC, surrounded by uh, other USUC properties, and proximate to UTUC, SSUD, R1, uh, and a number of other zone districts. The land use, currently existing, single unit residential, uh, also surrounded by mainly other single unit residential uh, with a few other uh, multi-unit and some uh, pu public, quasi-public uses. See the existing uh, house at the bottom there in the context of the neighborhood at the top, fairly typical for the neighborhood. Uh, to review the process, um, this application began on September 21st, uh, had a planning board hearing on November 15th and was approved was at the Ludi Committee on December 5th, here tonight, January 8th. Uh, during the processing this application, we received two comments in acquisition, uh, mainly concerned with impacts to the alley and additional traffic. Uh, to review the review criteria, first consistency with adopted plans. 
looking at a comprehensive plan 2040 sets many of our goals, including uh, creating a greater mix of housing options in every neighborhood for all individuals and families. Blueprint Denver, our implementation plan for comprehensive plan 2040 specifically calls for uh, until a citywide approach to ADUs is in place, individual rezonings to be considered appropriate. The context is urban, small multi-unit residential and mixed use areas embedded in one or two unit residential areas, a regular block pattern with alleys. The place type uh, residential low, predominantly single and two unit uses on smaller lots. And again, accessory dwelling units and duplexes appropriate and can be thoughtfully integrated where compatible, not in a growth area. Uh, uniformity of district regulations, uh, this is, as it is a standard zone district, meets the criteria for uniformity of district regulations, furthers public health, safety, and welfare by providing an additional housing unit, has a justifying circumstance in that the city adopted plan, uh, specifically the, the adoption of Blueprint Denver, changed the plan guidance for the property since the uh, uh, current zoning was implemented. And finally, Consistency with neighborhood contact zone district purpose and intent. Uh, we believe as it is um, a zoning similar to the current zoning with the exception of allowing the detached accessory dwelling unit building form. Uh, it is consistent with the neighborhood context purpose and intent statements of the Denver zoning code. Based on these factors, consistency with adopted plans, uniformity of district regulations, furthering public health, safety and welfare, a justifying circumstance and consistency with the zone district uh, neighborhood context, purpose and intent. CPD recommends approval based on these criteria having been met. Uh, the applicant is available virtually and I'm happy to answer any questions. Great, thank you very much. We have two folks signed up to speak this evening and I believe they are both online. Um, we will start with Brian Way. That's the applicant. It's the applicant. Yes, hello. I just want to make myself available in case anyone had any questions. We we're just simply looking to rezone the property so we could add a long-term ADU to help subsidize the cost of the home. Thank you, Brian. Our next speaker joining us via Zoom, Jesse Paris. Yes, good evening, members of council, those watching at home in the council chambers, if there's anybody left. Um, my name is Jesse LaShawn Paris. I'm representing for Black Star Action Movement for Self-Defense, Positive Action Commitment for Social Change, as well as the Unity Party of Colorado, the Northeast Residence Council, Frontline Black News, Jabbas Black Experience Enhanced, the Revolutionary Agenda. And I reside at the Roach, Bedbug, and Mice Infested Fusion Studios in Chantel Lewis's District of District 8. Um, I'm in support of this ADU. Um, I, I had a little bit of concern about the, um, the opposition, the letters of opposition, but the occupant is here and he explained exactly why he is doing this. So I'm in full support of this um, as I've been for quite a long time with these ADUs. I was just, the only concern I had was that they were being used as short-term rentals. Um, but since there's nowhere in the criteria about that currently, um, I have no other questions or no concerns. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, are there questions? That concludes our speakers. Are there questions from members of council on 1836? Seeing none. The public hearing is closed. Comments by members of council. We'll start with Councilman Cashman. Yeah, thank you, Madam President. Um, I do believe this application 
um, meets the uh, criteria that we're uh, charged with evaluating it by. And I just wanted to comment, um, I have uh, expressed numerous times, I don't particularly like the idea of ADUs being used for short-term rentals. However, in my discussions with the Office of Excise and License, they tell me they have very little problem with uh, you know, parties, et cetera, and ADUs. The problems are more in larger homes where you know, they can sleep eight, 10, 15 people. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, in full support of this and I would urge my colleagues to do the same. Thank you very much. Seeing no one else in queue, Madam Secretary, roll call on Bill 1836. Alvidrez? Aye. Flynn? Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Aye. Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. 13 ayes. 13 ayes. Uh, Council Bill 13, I'm sorry, 1836 has passed. Thank you very much. Um, our final bill, Councilwoman Gilmore, will you please put 1484 on the floor for final passage? I move that Council Bill 23-1484 be placed upon final consideration and do pass. Thank you very much. And that's been moved and seconded. The required public hearing for Bill 1484 is open. May we have the staff report? Hi, Fran. Good evening, members of City Council. My name is Fran Peñafiel, Senior City Planner with Community Planning and Development. And today I am going to present an overview of the rezoning request for five contiguous properties in North Emerson Street. So let's start with the request. This is an applicant-driven application requesting to change the zoning classification for 5107, 5111, 5115, 5117, and 5135 North Emerson, Emerson Street. The applicant is proposing to rezone from a light industrial district with a billboard overlay to a general urban residential mixed-use district that allows heights up to five stories. The purpose of the rezoning is to allow for redevelopment of the properties with a mix of residential and commercial uses. Now that we understand the request, uh, let's take a quick look at the subject properties, where they're located, and what's the surrounding context. The subject properties are located in Council District 9 with Council Member Watson, and they're located in the Globeville neighborhood. <coughs> the existing zoning of the subject properties is IAU2, which is a light industrial district that allows office, business, and light industrial uses with a billboard use overlay. The current land use of the sites is industrial to the northern portion of the site and vacant land to the south. The site is surrounded by mostly industrial uses to the north, south, and part of the west boundary. There is also some single unit uses to the west and open space to the east. This slide shows in the bottom right image what the subject site looks, site looks like. The top right image shows the site directly north to the subject sites. And this slide here shows the single unit homes directly west of the subject sites and the open space to the east across of North Emerson Street. Now let's take a look at the process. Informational notice of the application was sent on May 1st, 2023. Planning board recommended approval anonymously on October 4th 
And to date, staff has not received any comment letters from neighbors or from, the RN, from any of the RNLs. Now moving on to a review criteria. For a rezoning to be approved by City Council, it must be found that the requested map amendment is consistent with five review criteria found on the Denver zoning code. Our role as staff planners is to evaluate the requested district, in this case, the GRX5, against these five criteria. The first criterion is consistency with adopted plans. There are four plans applicable to this rezoning. We have Comprehensive Plan 2040, we have Blueprint Denver, we have the Global Neighborhood Plan, and we have the National Western Center Master Plan. Let's start with the Comprehensive Plan 2040. As stated in the staff report, the rezoning is consistent with several goals in the Comprehensive Plan 2040. The requested map amendment will enable mixed-use development in an infill location where infrastructure is already <coughs> in place. The requested GRX 5 zone district broadens the variety of uses allowing residential, allowing residents of Globeville to live, work, and play in this area. Therefore, the rezoning is consistent with Denver Comprehensive Plan 2040. Now, Blueprint Denver. The subject properties are mapped as part of the general urban neighborhood context in Blueprint Denver. And the future places map shows the area of the proposed rezoning as community center. Blueprint Denver describes a community center in the general urban context as providing a mix of office, commercial, and residential uses. The proposed GRX5 zone district allows for primary residential uses with secondary commercial uses in a pedestrian-oriented pattern with an active street level. Therefore, GRX5 is appropriate and consistent with the future place plan direction. The growth area in Blueprint Denver is community center. These areas are anticipated to see 20% employment growth and 25 housing growth by 2040. The proposed map amendment to GRX5 is consistent with the community centers and corridors growth area and that it will allow a broad range of job opportunities and housing types and direct more intense and appropriate growth to the area than the existing zoning, zoning allows. Given that the sub subject sites are within one of Denver's neighborhood equity and stabilization focused neighborhoods, an equity analysis was conducted for the sites. The applicant provided an equity response, both the equity brief and the equity response were attached to the staff report. The subject property is an area with moderate access to opportunity. The subject area is less equitable than Denver as a whole when it comes to access to parks, fresh foods, and healthcare. These scores are related to a higher than average percentage of ch children with obesity. The proposed district will allow for a mix of uses, thereby increasing the opportunity for access to retail, housing, and services in an area that is well served by transit. The subject properties are in an area that have high vulnerability to involuntary displacement. This analysis combines data from medium household, household income, percentage of people who rent housing, and percent of population with less than a college degree. The subject area scored as vulnerable to displacement in all three categories. The proposed district will allow for a mix of uses, including multi-unit residential. The applicant is proposing to pursue 100% income-restricted rental properties. Development of this property will be restricted, required to comply with the city's recently adopted mandatory affordable housing policy, which will contribute to addressing this equity measure. The subject property is an area that has moderate housing diversity. 
The subject area is not diverse in terms of missing middle housing or housing costs. As stated previously, the proposed zone district will allow for a mix of uses, including multi-unit residential. The map above shows the mix of jobs in, an, in areas of the city. Manufacturing jobs in Globeville are significantly higher than the city-wide average of 8.3%. The proposed district could enable residents with different incomes and education levels to live in a neighborhood with greater access to a variety of jobs and lead to wealth building opportunities. The proposed zone district also allows for a mix of uses, including office and retails, that provides the opportunity to contribute to diversifying jobs in the area. Now let's take a look at the plan guidance from the Globeville Neighborhood Plan. The Globeville, Globeville Neighborhood Plan was adopted by City Council in 2014 and includes the subject sites. The plan uses Blueprint Denver categories as the foundation for its recommended concept land use. The sites are mapped as mixed use, which is defined as having both a sizable employment base as well as a variety of mid to high density housing options. Intensity is higher in mixed-use areas than in predominantly residential areas. The proposed GRX 5 zone district is consistent with the recommendations of the Globeville Neighborhood Plan. The proposed rezoning would facilitate the redevelopment of the subject sites and would allow a variety of residential and commercial uses, strengthening the economy of areas consistent with the Globeville Neighborhood Plan recommendations. The National Western Center Master Plan was adopted by City Council in 2015 and applies to the areas of the proposed rezoning. The area of the proposed rezoning. The master plan divides the plan area in different character areas, and the subject sites are identified as part of character area one between Washington Street and South Platte River in the Globeville neighborhood. While the plan is mostly centered in the area where the National Western Stock Show is held, southeast from the subject sites, the National Western Center master plan reflects some of the intended uses for this area are for an evolution over time from the existing industrial uses to mixed-use development including employment and mid to high density housing options with building heights up to five stories the rezoning to grx5 would facilitate a residential development that would improve access to the national western center campus and help create an active edge along the west side of the river Moving on to criteria number two and three, staff also finds that the requested rezoning meets the next two criteria. The rezoning will result in a uniformity district regulations and it will further public health, safety and welfare, primarily through its implementation of adopted land use plans. The proposed GRX 5 zone district will allow a range of uses more compatible with a mixed use center, creating opportunities for more housing and community serving businesses on the properties. The application identifies the changing conditions such an as an adopted plan as a justified circumstance. Recent physical changes near the subject site include the redevelopment of the National Western Center campus, the recent completion, completion of the First Avenue Bridge across the South Platte will lead to increased connectivity between the National Western Center campus and Globeville. City improvements in Carpio Sanguinete Park and Washington Street will improve mobility and open space access in the area for new residents and businesses as these currently underutilized properties are developed. The Globeville Neighborhood Plan calls for mixed-use zoning along the South Platte River and the need for increased ice on the park that will result from surrounding residential and commercial development. In addition, the city has adopted the Comprehensive Plan 2040, Blueprint Denver, and the Globeville Neighborhood Plan since the approval of the existing IAU2 zone districts. 
As stated throughout this report, the proposed rezoning meets the intent of these plans. Lastly, the proposed rezoning is consistent with the general urban neighborhood context, residential mixed use, five-story zone district, purpose and intent. Staff does recommend that City Council approve the map amendment based on finding that all the review criteria has been met. And the applicant is present here, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Great, thank you, Fran. Uh, we have one person signed up to speak this evening. Um, we will go to Jesse Paris on Zoom. Yes, the last one of the evening. Yes, my name is Jessica Sean Parrison. I represent for Black Star Action Movement for self <laughs> Positive Action Commitment for Social Change, as well as the Unity Party of Colorado, the Frontline front Black News, uh, Re the Revolutionary Agenda, Shabaka's Black Experience Enhanced, and I reside at the Roach, Bedbug, and Mice Infested Fusion Studios in Councilwoman Chantel Lewis's district of District 8. I have several questions, uh, members of council. Um, the first question is, has the GES been notified of this and what are their thoughts on this? Um, since this is in Globeville, um, if there's going to be housing here, what is the AMI level going to be for the housing? Was there a good neighborhood agreement signed? Was there a community agreement signed? Also, was there a traffic study done? And also, was there a rail study done? If council member Daryl Watson or any other, other members of the council would answer those questions, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you and have a good night. Thank you very much. That concludes our speakers. Are there questions for members of council on 1484? Councilwoman Gonzalez Gutierrez. Thank you, um, Madam President. Um, yeah, I do have a couple of questions because I did actually hear from the GES coalition. And what I did hear is that um, it sounds like they're supportive of the new development in this area and, and have heard from um, the developers that they're committed to um, affordability. And so I may have just a couple of questions of things that, that I know that were asks and requests um, around advocacy in the neighborhood. Um, and so just curious around what the commitment is to continuing those conversations with the GES coalition um, and community members around, you know, advocating for things like, you know, grocery stores, um, things in the community that, um, that they're hoping that with these types of developments could possibly bring. Good evening, council. Um, forgive me, I, I'm under the weather. I sound ridiculous. So thanks for bearing <laughs> with me. Uh, Peter Wall, representative for the applicant. Appreciate the question. Yeah, we've probably had four or five meetings now with, with GES. The first one starting with Nola, Anna, and a couple of actually residents in the immediate area. Um, Nola testified in support of this application at the planning board meeting as well. Um, they have a good neighbor agreement in their inbox. We're waiting to hear back from them. Um, but we are absolutely committed to making sure that um, we're gonna be good partners, particularly on the affordability side. Ultimately, the goal of this rezoning, if it's approved this evening, is to construct approximately 200 unit income restricted project with a majority of those units being larger bedrooms. Uh, about 75% of the units would be three and two bedrooms, really in response to our conversations with the GES coalition, as well as deeper affordabilities, um, and certainly open to keeping the, the dialogue um, going um, to make sure that their needs are met. Um, we're hearing hopefully good things around a grocery store at 51st and, and Washington there. 
Um, so hope that goes through. And then I know there's a development across the street or the rezoning across the street for the library as well. So I think there's a lot of great change coming to the area. Thank you so much. And in uh, so you talked about a good neighbor agreement. Is there also a community benefits agreement that's being? Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to say GA, community benefits okay. agreement. They have it, um, we're waiting to hear back from them on it. Great, and it sounds like they're very interested in that. So I appreciate the fact that, that you all are continuing to work with them. Thank you. Absolutely. That's all welcome. my questions, Madam President. Thank you, Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Council President. And Peter, would you come back up? Um, thank you also for reaching out to my office and speaking to me uh, and us on, 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 on this as you were going through this, this process. Can you speak a little bit to your, um, the Center for Community Wealth Building and kind of the work and the discussions you're having for possible for future residents as part of your targeting for nest um, equity um, support? Sure. Yeah, I think our goal is thinking about the ground floor space in the building and ultimately what happens with that space in terms of community spaces. So, you know, one of our original thoughts was creating some maker spaces in the bottom floor, some smaller retail spaces where folks could use that for commerce because I think there'll be some great activation from that ground floor and hopefully the expansion of the park right there with more people coming there. And then ultimately, you know, hopefully having a community space on the ground floor that the neighborhood and community can use moving forward for meetings and, and general gatherings. Um, and then, yeah, keeping the, the conversations open with Nest. We had one initial meeting with them about programming of the ground floor, still very early on in the process, but those were kind of generally our two ideas and thinking around the ground floor spaces. I appreciate that, Peter. Uh, no further questions. Great, thank you very much. Um, seeing no one else in queue, the public hearing is closed. Comments by members of council on 1484. We'll start with Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, Council President. I, I have to say uh, this, uh, the, uh, the type of developments that are happening around this corridor, um, I think what is being proposed here fits nicely in it. I think your communication around the storefront and what that use can be and making sure that that is informed based on some of the larger developments that are gonna be also income restricted um, for 99 years. I think uh, one of the properties um, is in partnership with TR Colectiva. The library is gonna be right around there. Denver Public, um, uh, Denver Parks and Recreation is looking at some park uh, sites uh, near there. I think this is going to be um, uh, a good partner. It does meet the five criteria. Uh, I know it meets the expectations from uh, the global Swansea plan, as well as the overarching uh, National Western. Um, I support uh, this and I encourage uh, my colleagues to support this as well. Thank you very much. Seeing no one else in queue, Madam Secretary, roll call please on 23-1484. Alvitres? Aye. Flynn? Aye. Gilmore? Aye. Gonzalez Gutierrez? Aye. Hines? Aye. Cashman? Aye. Lewis? Aye. Parody? Aye. Romero Campbell? Aye. Sandoval? Aye. Sawyer? Aye. Watson? Aye. Madam President? Aye. Madam Secretary, close the voting and announce the results. 13 ayes. 13 ayes. Council Bill 23-1484 has passed. Thank you all. Um, dependent upon publication on Monday, January 22nd, 2024, Council will hold a courtesy public hearing on Bill 1939, approving and accepting the Near Northwest Area Plan, which plan shall become part of the Comprehensive Plan 2040 for the City and County of Denver, pursuant to the provisions of Section 1261 of the 12-61 of the Denver Revised Municipal Code. There being no further business before this body, this meeting is adjourned.